Hello everyone, and... to Grappling with Canada. I'm your host, as usual, The Taxman, and I'm very, very excited to be bringing this month's episode to you, all of you, covering our subject, Canada's greatest athlete, Gene Kaniski. Now, for myself personally, the last three episodes that we've covered so far are all people that I had foreknowledge of, whether it was Stu Hart, Dino Bravo, or Gail Kim, who I was fortunate to have seen pretty much the majority of her career. I had enough information, I had enough knowledge and pre-existing information and that pre-existing touchstone to all three of them where it was a lot easier, I will say, to formulate the program. With Gene Kaniski, however, a lot of his big moments and a lot of what he accomplished throughout his career was done, you know, 10, 20, 30 years before I was born. So for me, it's been very interesting to go back through the catalog, back in time, if you will, and kind of see what Gene was all about, what his career really was about, what he really meant to Canada, and obviously what he meant to the international markets, specifically the United States and Japan, which we are going to get to later on in this episode. I think another part of this episode that I found so fascinating is honestly the two guests that I have joining me on the program, and we're going to get to that in a little bit. But it's always nice, and I know it kind of sounds self-deprecating and it's not meant to be that and it's not meant to sound funny either but when you can do a program and you think that you have enough knowledge and you think that you've researched enough and you can get schooled absolutely schooled by the guests that you have on your program and love every second of it it honestly it brings out the best in myself and that's what I found in this episode like I said with the guests that you're going to hear a little bit later so I'm really excited for this one I really hope that you guys enjoy listening to it and uh, and let's just let's just get into it. But before we do all of that, let's clear up a few housekeeping things. As usual, you can find this program on any major podcast platform, whether it's iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, wherever you buy, trade, sell, steal, barter your favorite podcasts, you will find us. Please, while you're finding us, leave a five star review where applicable, and make sure you hit that subscribe or follow button if it's Spotify. It really helps us show it a lot. And on that note, I am very excited to say that we have been charting on the iTunes charts. So we are right now officially number 32 in Canada for wrestling-related podcasts. And I think we're just about cracking the 200 mark in the UK. So all of our listeners in Canada and the UK, thank you very much. Make sure you guys spread the word because because uh, it's it's just going to grow from here and and I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, where this whole thing goes so once again uh, please make sure you pass the word on rate review and subscribe where possible Uh, you can also find the show youtube.com slash c slash six-sided podcast we are almost at we're almost at our halfway mark if you will to that beautiful 1000 subscriber mark where we will be giving away one wonderful prize package which i'm going to speak about later on in the program so stay tuned for that one and another thing i'm going to be getting into later on in the program is a little merchandise update now i have a pretty cool idea lined up and i'm going to throw that one out there and see where it goes so once again uh stay tuned to all of that at the end of the program now like i said at the start of the program I'm joined today by two fantastic guests, and like I said, 
They schooled me, and I loved every minute of it. I'm joined on the program by the author of Gene Kaniski, Canadian wrestling legend, as well as professional wrestling in the Pacific Northwest, the incredible Steve Verrier. I am also joined by MapleLeafWrestling.com and the author of the Canadian Heavyweight Title, The Complete History from 1978 to 1984, as well as from Tales from Toronto Wrestling, AC from MapleLeafWrestling.com. Now, like I said, these two guests were just incredible individuals, and uh, I very much look forward to getting them back on the program for uh, for later subject matters. I'm sure that you guys are going to get just as much enjoyment and knowledge out of the discussions with them as I did, because honestly, it was a ton of fun, and um, yeah, I, I just can't say enough good things about them. And really, though, that's kind of the crux of this program, is finding people who obviously know more than me, but getting the information out to you, the listener, so you can pass it on to your friends and family, for example, tidbits and, and things that you would have never known about your favorite wrestling personalities, these larger-than-life Canadian personalities, and really, there's no better people to do that than authors, I find, so I have two on this program, obviously, you guys have heard uh, Heath McCoy on episode one, the Stuart episode, and I'd be remiss if I didn't once again mention Pat LaPrade and Bert Randy Bear from episode two, the Dina Bravo episode, just... Man, it, it's it's such a treat for myself to be doing these programs and talking with these individuals and really learning about the history of Canadian wrestling that, like I've said many times, and I'm probably going to continue to repeat it throughout the course of this program, if we're not talking about it, if people like myself are not learning about it and passing it on to our children and our friends and family, then unfortunately it's going to get lost to the sands of time, and I really don't want that to happen. So I know I'm kind of waxing poetic a little bit here, but... Once again, uh, that really is the goal of this program, is to bring all these stories and all this information to light for you, the listener, for all of us to enjoy and for all of us to share, once again, with friends and family. So do us a favor, uh, make sure you share the program. You're probably on your phone right now, I guarantee it, or maybe you're on your computer, but I almost guarantee you're on your phone right now. Text a friend, tell him, hey, I listened to the Tax Man on Grappling with Canada on the Gene Kaniski episode, and man, it was incredible, and here's why. And just, you know, pass it on. Let's get this thing going. It would mean a lot to me. And it means a lot to the preservation of the history of Canadian wrestling and what Canadian wrestling means to the international markets abroad. And just keeping on topic on the author aspect of this all, tinyurl.com slash grapplingwithcanada is where you can go to find links to the books of the aforementioned authors. Once again, use those links. Pick those books because really they, they are a great not just companion piece for this episode, but a great jumping off point and doing a deep dive into the history of Canadian wrestling. And once again, when you use those Amazon codes to purchase those books, you do not pay any type of surcharge. Just this program gets a tiny kickback from Amazon for using the service. So once again, tinyurl.com slash grapplingwithcanada is where you can find those and uh, support the program. Now let's dive into the program. Eugene Nicholas Kaniski was born in November 23rd of 1928. He was a Canadian athlete who played football for the Edmonton Eskimos and was later an obviously very successful professional wrestler, recognized as multiple-time world heavyweight champion. Canada's greatest athlete, as he billed himself for promotional purposes, was born just outside of Edmonton in Alberta, Canada. And Kaniski was one of the very first world champions in professional wrestling to have a previous background in football. Uh, he is the father of professional wrestler Kelly Kaniski and international amateur and professional wrestler Nick Kaniski. 
Now, he was one of six children of local politicians, uh, Julia Kaniski, who immigrated from Poland. At the age of 17, he was over six feet tall, and he wrestled and played football at St. Joseph's High School. In March of 1947, he entered the annual Edmonton Schools Boxing and Wrestling Tournament at West Glen Gymnasium, although due to his size, he was the lone heavyweight competing. He captured the attention of scouts for the Edmonton Eskimos of the Western Interprofessional Football Union in 1949. Uh, later on, that would form what we know today as the Canadian Football League, or the CFL. Along with Kaniski, wrestlers Al Olming and Stu Hart were at the training camp as well. Now, those are obviously two names that everybody listening to this program will be familiar with from the Stu Hart episode. Now, if you haven't heard that one, I would highly suggest that you go back in the archives and listen to this, the legend of Stu Hart and Stampede Wrestling, which was our very first episode and quite a tremendous one, if I may say so myself. Two of his Edmonton Eskimos teammates were future wrestlers Wilbur Snyder and Joe Blanchard. He secured himself a spot on the defensive line, and his play earned him a scholarship to the University of Arizona. He enrolled there in September of 1950 to January of 1952 and played on the defensive line for Bob Winslow. Rod Fenton recruited Kaniski into professional wrestling in Arizona in 1952. Uh, Kaniski returned to Edmonton to play for the Eskimos, and he suffered a torn kneecap in the game's team's first game against Saskatchewan in 1952. He retired from football in 1953 to resume wrestling full-time, and that's really where his life story and legacy kicks off. To get us there, though, I'm going to play a Gene Kaniski promo. Now, this is from the AWA in 1984. Uh, He's putting over his time in the NWA, his time as the AWA World Heavyweight Champ, and uh, his plans for expansion into Canada. So I'm going to play this Gene Kaniski promo, which I hope you enjoy. And on the other side, we get into the meat of the program with the incomparable Steve Barrier. To tie the past to the future, except perhaps with the only man who has ever held the AWA Championship and the NWA Heavyweight Championship of the world. His name is Gene Kaniski. Gene, you're promoting these days. Yes, I'm promoting at Vancouver, and I'm very, very fortunate to be associated with the AWA World of All-Star Wrestling. We have the greatest, greatest wrestlers in the world, and I feel that the people in Vancouver, or whether it be St. John's, Newfoundland, are going to see the greatest talent ever in any ring at any time. I am uh, really, really thrilled as I look at these great athletes and the superb condition they're in. It makes me proud that I'm a professional athlete. They take care of their bodies, but after all, one's body is the Lord's temple and one should take care of it. I Speaking of great athletes, I, I don't want to interrupt, but speaking of great athletes, speaking of tag teams, and we do have that tag team battle royal coming up, Kelly and Nick, your sons, well, tag team possibility? Uh, Yes, uh, Kelly, as you know, graduated from West Texas State uh, approximately four years ago and turned pro. Uh, My son, Nicholas Clayton, goes to Simon Fraser. He'll be graduating shortly. Uh, He's been wrestling approximately 11 years amateur, and he's on the national team. And, uh, in fact, he'll be going to Toronto to wrestle in the Canada Cup. Uh, So uh, they've got a wealth of uh, background, and naturally everybody wants to see Canada's greatest athlete team up with his son, Kelly, or Nick. And that's going to happen in the very near future, Larry. Now, wait a minute. Gene Kaniski, Canada's greatest athlete, is going to team up with his son, Kelly? Oh, yes. Uh, the mail has been coming in, and uh, I am looking forward to seeing my fellow Canadians uh, come to watch uh, Canada's greatest athlete and his son. And uh, when you have your son as a tag team, I mean, what else could you ask for? I don't know. I really don't know. I've never heard of anything like it. Too bad you're not in this battle royal. $100,000 went to the winner. 
Well, I'll tell you, they're a brutal thing, and it's the first in the history of wrestling, $100,000. It's a big, big price to pay, but sometimes I have second thoughts. If I could get the right to partner, of course, my son Kelly was not available, I think I'd enter it, because I can certainly use the money with the economy being what it is. That $100,000 would bring my lifestyle back up to where I want it. But unfortunately, Kelly's not available. So what I will do, I will just sit there at ringside and watch the mayhem. The fans are going to be the big winners. It's the first ever in professional uh, wrestling. You know, when you see a match like that, for every dollar you spend, you can get a $5 value. Larry, the promotion should be congratulated, the AWA should be promoted, and Stanley Blackburn, I have to congratulate you. You have come up with something different. Absolutely, you just heard it. Gene Koniski, soon to tag team with Kelly Koniski. Larry, before leaving, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank my fellow Canadians and the American viewing audience for allowing me in their homes via TV. Larry, you did a great job. You're a little nervous, but bullet by this, son. Gene Koniski, the greatest athlete in Canada. Very pleased to be joined on the program today. The author of two incredible wrestling books. Obviously, the one that we're going to be talking about in this program, Gene Koniski, Canadian wrestling legend, and as well as professional wrestling in the Pacific Northwest. Please be joined in the program today by Steve Verrier. Steve, how are you doing? Well, I'm doing all right. Just to set the record straight, I am Canadian as well as American, but I'm actually living in Washington State, a little south of Seattle. Yeah. Uh, but I get up to BC, at least in different eras, <laughs> pretty regularly. I hope to get there soon again. But yeah, great to be on. And we were discussing off the program that you might make a trip to Winnipeg in the near future to discuss some uh, professional wrestling history. Well, yeah, I, you know, I don't want to get into the next project I'm working on, but it certainly pertains to Winnipeg. But, you know, in fact, Kaniski was a huge attraction in Winnipeg over uh, many, many years. So I, I think there's an audience of people in Winnipeg who remember Kaniski, others who maybe need a reminder. Uh, but, yeah, I do hope to get up there uh, when things get a little more back to normal. Yeah, it's, it, it's funny. A guy like Kaniski just has all these different... Um, tendrils, if you will, across Canada and and obviously America as well. But you you almost can't go anywhere and not hear tales of Kaniski or somebody who saw him live or, or that kind of connection. It really just kind of permeates all, all of the North American wrestling scene. Yeah, even still, I mean, obviously younger people have heard about him from from parents, from older ones. But you know, I'd say pretty much anybody who uh, you know, was of conscious age, you know, even in the 1970s, probably remembers something about Gene Kaniski. I mean, he's he's one of those larger-than-life characters in Canada, particularly. Uh, he's somebody we'll remember for a long time. I remember listening to, and uh, they don't have a program anymore, but um, Lance Storm and Don Callis had a program for a couple of years there, and they were telling the story, or Lance Storm was, about the time they had the tag match him and Jericho and Kaniski in Winnipeg, I believe it was, against uh, Bulldog Bob Brown and a couple others. I'm, I'm not, I don't remember who was in the match, but it's just funny, right? Two quote-unquote mo modern guys, and then they're talking about tagging with uh, a legend like Kaniski, who I think it was like 70 at the time. Well, actually, you're talking about the last series of matches Kaniski wrestled. He was, I believe, 63 years old. I think they took place in 1992. Um, and I, I think Tony Condello, kind of a yes. Winnipeg legend himself, was 
was promoting the shows, and as I recall, and I think I mentioned this in the book, again, I'm working on another project, and I'm getting back into Kaniski mode now. I hope I get things <laughs> right. But uh, I remember when I talked to Tony, he said that uh, he asked Nick Bockwinkle to see whether Kaniski would you know, come to Winnipeg to referee shows. Yes. Uh, Gene had been out of the ring for quite a while. He, he was 63. 1992, he had wrestled occasionally in the 1980s, but it was, you know, normally for a special event. I mean, he, he was retired. He liked to be retired from the ring. Uh, Bockwinkle asked, well, Gene, why don't you come to Winnipeg? You want to, you know, meet some friends and uh, do some refereeing? Kaniski agreed to that when he was there. Um, yeah, I don't remember whether it was Tony or Nick Bockwinkle who asked him, well, Gene, since you're here and these young guys seem to have a lot of respect for you, <laughs> now how about putting on the boots one more time, <laughs> getting in the ring? And, and so, yeah, Kaniski, you know, that's the crossover. He wrestled guys like Jericho. You know, Brown was nothing new for him. Yeah. Uh, but Jericho, Lance Storm, and uh, he... You know, obviously looked his age by that time, but, uh, uh, you know, he survived those matches. He didn't look too much out of place. Um, I think he did pretty well for a 63-year-old, but yeah, uh, that's agree. another little piece of Winnipeg trivia concerning Gene Kaniski. Uh, his last matches were there, and uh, it is great that he probably passed something on to those young guys who really made a mark in the wrestling business, you know, Jericho, Storm, Callis, um, you know, one of those little tidbits. And Kaniski's life is full of, you know, little gems like that. Uh, and, you know, a lot of them seem to center on Winnipeg. He was in and out of the city for decades. And, uh, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of people in the city who have great stories to tell. It's funny growing up, you know, I, my dad would talk about essentially two wrestlers, and he would give me the claw every once in a while, and that's a little throwback if anybody anybody from Winnipeg knows that their dad used to give him the wicked claw. But uh, two wrestlers that my dad would talk about were uh, Gene Kniski and Baron and uh, and Baron. Yes, that's correct, and that's that's who he would talk about. And it's funny, you know, I obviously never got to see Gene Kniski wrestle in person. I've seen some film, but, you know, there's a lot of missing time, if you will. A lot wasn't filmed back when Gene was, was uh, rocking and rolling. So I missed out on all that. But guys like my my dad's age and, and, you know, even people older, they saw him in Winnipeg. They saw him live and they, they were able to witness, you know, the crowds and the electricity and what he brought to everything. And like you said, you know, there's, there's a lot of connections with Winnipeg and Gene Kaniski even to this day. Yeah, you mentioned Von Rasky. Yeah, I grew up watching him. Uh, you know, I was living in southern Ontario, and on one of the Detroit channels, we got um, WWA Wrestling. It was a promotion run by Wilbur Snyder and Dick the Bruiser. Yes. Based in Indianapolis. Von Rasky was a, a big attraction. So I grew up watching him. I thought he was just one of the scariest guys in the world. Yeah. <laughs> I went to see him in person when he came through Ontario. Um, and, I, you know, he, he was one of those wrestlers. There are guys that you just wanted to stay away from. I mean, you, you bought into their characters entirely. I did. I 
kind of remember at age maybe, I, I don't know, I was a young fellow, but kind of remember standing back. Uh, this was in a smaller arena. I don't even remember which town in southern Ontario. Um, but I, I saw Von Raschke just sitting there, you know, relaxing after a match, and I, I would not dare. You know, I, 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 I didn't want to approach that yeah. guy. I mean, he was a monster. And then, interestingly, you know, coming back to Kaniski, when I was doing the Kaniski book, I, I called Von Raschke. We had a good talk. He was out of character. Yeah. You know, I had no idea that uh, he considered Kaniski kind of an influence, you know, somebody who showed him the ropes, so to speak. Yep. Um, you know, I got to meet Von Raschke at least briefly at the Cauliflower Cauliflower Alley Club uh, two or three years ago. Just, you know, very gentle, giant. Uh, it's, 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 it's amazing. I mean, compared to now, you know, you see people watching a wrestling show, people in the audience, in the small audience now, know slapping the the heel on the back or you know making a silly face when the heel is uh, you know backed up to the crowd but you know in those days i remember you know, for example if somebody like abdullah the butcher oh god uh, yes baron von Raschke, you know came through the crowd i remember in calgary once abdullah was you know wandering through the crowd he got close to me and i i got out of there <laughs> yeah you were the only one yeah a different era, but was Kaniski was one of those guys who played his part well. I mean, uh, by just about every account, a great guy, but uh, he played his character very well. I mean, there was certainly a lot of overlap between the character and the man, but, uh, you know, he was one of those guys you took him seriously. You took a lot of guys seriously from that era, but he was, he was one of the best, definitely. So talking about... You, or keeping on uh, in tune with you know wrestlers staying in character. When you were doing the research for the book, did you have a lot of issue with kayfabe being a problem in your research? Because I, when I was talking with Heath McCoy on the Stu Hart podcast, he said that he you know came across some of that. Right, guys from that era still don't want to really give you the peek behind the curtain. They really still want to give you the perception that they are this person, not you know, their, their given name, if you will. Yeah. Well, I think all the, the guys I spoke to at length were out of character. You know, they had stories to tell. They realized that, you know, I respect what they did. Uh, I wasn't going to insult them, so they weren't going to insult me in return. But there, there were some who, you know, maybe gave short sound bites, um, I don't know whether they were entirely in character or not, but if they had an issue in the ring with somebody, maybe they played that up a little bit. Yes. Uh, so maybe they, you know, they hadn't dropped <laughs> kayfabe altogether. But um, you know, the ones I talked to, as I say at length, were were very forthcoming, very open as to the nature of. Uh, the wrestling business and, and their part in it. So we were also talking earlier in the program and I brought up the point that, you know, you don't, you can't just go on YouTube and watch, you know, a hundred Gene Kaniski matches, right? If, unfortunately, if you didn't grow up during that time, you didn't see it and you, you may never see him at his very best. 
when you were researching the book, how difficult was it for you to kind of find these tidbits of information or at least first-hand accounts of, of what Gene Kaniski meant wherever he was wrestling? So you, did you say how hard to bind? How hard to find? Like, how hard was it to, to come across the information? And how, how difficult is it to get the first-hand accounts? Um, well, you know, you never expect to be 100% successful. But, um, you know, I, I just found that one thing would constantly lead to another thing. I mean, there were some people who were impossible to track down. But uh, as I indicate in the Kaniski book, um, I started the whole project by calling the village office where Kaniski actually uh, lived his, his earliest years. I mean, everybody considers Kaniski from Edmonton. Yeah, but in fact, he was from a very small community, about forty-five miles east of there. Uh, I had no idea, so I started out by contacting people in that village. You know, I would say, "Well, do you know anybody else who you know may be helpful?" Yeah, uh, I talked to some of those people when I got to that village of, of Chipman, Alberta. Um, so, I, I you know, I took copious notes, just you know, whenever one thing led to another I made sure that I would at least make an effort to get at that um, there, there were some people who just uh, you know you, you learn that there are some former wrestlers who don't want to be contacted they're <laughs> about as you know they're, they're off somewhere you hear they're living in who knows where um, you know I, I remember for example and I've talked to him since but um in the early 70s, uh, probably the biggest attraction in Vancouver was uh, a wrestler who went by the Brute, okay. uh, Michael Davis. I remember calling every Michael Davis I could track down <laughs> in the state of Florida where he lives. Um, you know, I tried everything. I contacted people who had shows that this man had been on previously couldn't get hold of him. Um, I did pertaining to the project that I'm working on now and uh, got a lot of great information from him. I, I wish I could have tracked him down before, you know, I published the Kaniski book. But, uh, you know, I would say for every hundred things that I go after, you know, if, if I can, you know, get to two thirds of those people or, you know, track down two thirds of those documents or whatever it may be. That's probably as good as you know as can be done. Sometimes I, I, I I've talked to writers who you know, would spend up to you know seven years or so working on a, a wrestler bio, and if you're willing to invest that amount of time on it, you, you've got a greater chance. Yes. Of, you know, tracking down little tidbits that you otherwise wouldn't. But, but overall, you know, I, I, I find, you know, people were very forthcoming. I would track down people in Alberta who had connection with Kaniski going back to the Depression, you know, at every phase of his wrestling career afterward. And, and the afterward part was great. I mean, Kaniski uh, lived in a small town in northern Washington, you know, Canada's greatest athlete, actually, 
lived in the United States for most of his life. Yeah, which is crazy and, to think. You know, people there were great. I went to his old house. I, I talked to people he hung out with, people he lent money to. So just, you know, if you're very, very patient and uh, not afraid to call people or, you know, call them a fifth or sixth time, uh, you usually get something that, that is going to help to put the story together. So I, I guess... From your perspective, do you think that Gene had a bigger influence in Canada, or was it, or did he have a bigger influence in America? Because I'm, I'm looking down the list of, of you know, titles he won, um, people that he was partnered with, um, people that he influenced, uh, people that he trained, etc. It, it almost seems like you could split it down the middle, right? Uh, what, what would be your perception? I think in Canada he was more than a wrestler, and I think that's the difference. Um, you know, he began his professional athletic career in Edmonton playing football. I mean, he became a regional name in Alberta. And then he began wrestling in the United States, you know, actually, um, after he left university in Arizona. I mean, that's another little fact that a lot of people are not aware of. His wrestling career began in the States. He trained in the States. Uh, he wrestled a few years in the States, came back to Canada in the late 50s. Um, and although he was a big name in wrestling in the United States during those early years and later on, you know, in Canada, he was just, he, he was a national celebrity. Yes. But he's the guy who would be on the CBC doing this show or that show. He was, he was known to Canadians. And again, um, it's, it's Canadians who tend to remember him at this point. You know, American wrestling fans, but Canadians, whether they liked wrestling or hated him, uh, I think remember Kaniski as, as much, much more than a wrestler. In fact, um, I, I think if you put the whole package together, in my mind, I mean, Canada has had a lot of great wrestlers. Uh, you know, athletically, Kaniski was very, very good. There might have been a few who were better in terms of amateur wrestling. Kaniski won a, a provincial amateur wrestling championship in Canada. But, you know, he was not that super elite level that, say, an Earl McCready, George Gordienko, you know, guys of that caliber were. Um, so Kaniski was a good athlete, a very, very, very good athlete, maybe a great athlete, but he was more. He was a character. Uh, he was a guy who spoke his mind. He was a guy who represented Canada extremely well. And I, I think, you know, if I had to choose the best Canadian wrestling personality of all time, I would, I would say it's Kaniski. He was the NWA World Heavyweight Champion for three years when... That really meant something. Yeah, that was a big... It's not like belts today. They don't even call them belts half the time. right? And, and just to contextualize it for a lot of newer listeners, when you see a guy who has a six-month run and you're sitting at home saying, oh, what a great run with whatever title he has, we'll say, that's, that's nothing. Like, you're talking about a guy who was the man in the biggest interpromotional association in history essentially yeah he traveled internationally he uh, he was a draw you know he i think 
follow that uh, line of successful champions very, very well. I mean, Luthez, Buddy Rogers, Pat O'Connor, and, and so on. Um, now, in Canada, was he the attraction that whipper Billy Watson was? Uh, maybe not, you know, maybe not quite. But again, if we look at the big picture, uh, Kaniski internationally was a, a much greater attraction than, than Watson. You know, I, I think if you put the whole bit together, uh, Kaniski is as good as Canada uh, ever produced. And I think in Canada, you know, his legacy is a little greater than it is to Americans. Uh, but, you know, he's remembered in a lot of places. I think it's super interesting that, you know, obviously he, he develops during the time before Stampede Wrestling really became anything. So we're in the 60s, definitely in the 70s, and in the early 80s, you would see wrestlers from the States come up to Edmonton and the Calgary territory to get trained under Stu Hart and, and learn the Canadian style, we're going to say quote-unquote, but for Gene, he's from that area, moves down to the southern states, and he was trained by Dory Funk and Tony Morelia, um, and it, it's it just, like, what 10 years is, like, that's the gap, and it's crazy to think, like, he had to go down there to get trained, and, and 10 years later, guys are coming up to get trained. Well, yeah, I don't think he had to go down there to get trained. I mean, he... Uh, you know, after playing professional football for the Eskimos, uh, you know, he got a scholarship to go to the University of Arizona. Football was not the highest paying profession, you know, back in the late 40s, early 50s. Um, you know, he went to Arizona to study, to play college football. He was very, very good. He was a, a definite NFL prospect. In fact, he, he may well have played professionally uh, in the NFL uh, had he not dropped out of college. I mean, he would have had to wait a few years. It was not that simple to to transition um, at, at that time. I mean, there were rules in place. If you dropped out, you had to wait until your class graduated. Uh, so, you know, he was in Arizona uh, based on his decision to study there, and it just so happens while in Arizona uh, he met up with a, a man named uh, Rod Fenton, the, the local promoter in Tucson, Arizona. Fenton was a prairie guy, in fact, from Edmonton. He knew the Kaniski family. Um, Kaniski made his acquaintance. Uh, as you say, uh, he did some training with Dory Funk Sr., Tony Morelli, and other guys uh, working the circuit down there. So Kaniski happened to be down there. He made good connections, and that's where he did his training. But I don't think there's much doubt that if he, you know, had, you know, if, if he really had had an interest in uh, making that transition to pro wrestling rather than to pro football in the late 40s, you know, a guy with his pedigree uh, and size, athletic ability, he would have had an opportunity to train in Alberta. I mean, Stu Hart was... Uh, you know, he was uh, he certainly was a resource. Al Oming up in Edmonton. Kaniski yeah. would have had an opportunity. Just, I think he liked it down south after all those cold Edmonton winters. <laughs> yeah. Just where he happened to do his training and uh, worked out very well for him. Well, I'd say because he comes back up to Canada after 
the quote unquote training and then he's he's out in Toronto and Montreal and he's having massive success. Um, he's teaming with Buddy Rogers. Uh, he he had a big feud against uh, Whipper Watson, and uh, that one, if I'm not mistaken, was on CBC, and that really like kind of galvanized the nation behind Gene Kaniski. Like this guy is, he's our guy. Yeah, the CBC definitely played a, a huge role. He was a you know he was living in the Buffalo area, but he was a regular in Toronto and, and around southern Ontario. And he was getting a lot of uh, publicity through the CBC in the late fifties. Um, you know, it's 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 such a shame that, as as you alluded to earlier, that you know so little footage survives. Um, it would have been great to see his you know old matches against the likes of Watson, O'Connor, uh, and and so many others, but. Uh, yeah, the CBC was uh, was pivotal, I think, in, in making Kaniski an attraction nationwide. In Canada, back in the day, even even up till you know fifteen years ago, uh, everything was still over the uh, rabbit ears, if you will. And I can even remember my nan and papa; they had their TV set, and it was like three channels. It was two regional ones, um, CTV and. Well, it's gone through several changes now, global, but CBC was the was the one, right? And you had it. It was Saturday night was hockey, and then and then yeah. they they saw they saw you know how many countless wrestling matches, with, uh, whether it was uh, programming from from Toronto, whether it was from um, out in Montreal, um, whether it was from Vancouver, because we got a little bit of that over here with All Star Wrestling as well, I believe. But it's it's crazy to just the one unifying television program that everybody had in from the forties, fifties, and even up to today is the CBC. And it's still one that, you know, whether what, it doesn't matter what you think about it. It's still like the, that's Canada's channel even still. And if you're on the CBC, you're, that's a big deal. Yeah. I mean, I'm living in Washington and I watch the CBC regularly. Oh yeah. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, I, I remember, you know, growing up in that, pre-hundreds of channels era. <laughs> and uh, I remember when my town, Strathroy, Ontario, um, got TV cable. I mean, I remember riding my bike out there and looking at this setup out in the field. Uh, you know, there were a few you know, towers and you know, who knows what. And, you know, when they got this thing up and running, we got something like eight channels, <laughs> <laughs> which was great at that time. But it, uh, it at least enabled us to see a little more wrestling. And as I say, to get the channels from Detroit and uh, uh, a few other places where we had an opportunity to see a little more. I mean, I, I did not grow up during that CBC wrestling era. I grew up watching the CBC, but I, you know, I missed all of that, uh, you know, early Gene Kaniski stuff. Uh, I wish it were available. Maybe it's on some reel somewhere, and maybe it'll be one of those finds that I doubt it, but never say never. I guess that it's on a reel somewhere, buried in a back lot, and and well, maybe uh, one day it comes to light. Let's, let's hope. <laughs> hey, you if, know, if we all know what the promoters used to do, I mean, they would tape next week's show over last Yeah, they week's would, show. yeah. Just <laughs> got to save that um, tape. But, you know, hopefully things turn up. And, uh, you know, hope, 
hopefully they don't fall into the hands. Well, you know, there's there's one company that owns, uh, you know, most of the surviving footage, but but hopefully, you know, things will turn up and we can enjoy. So obviously, we're talking about his influence on the NWA, and obviously that was that's a big part of his career, but. He was also the AWA champion, and he he beat Fern Gagne, the the owner of of AWA, for that title. So if you're talking about a guy who has a vote of confidence and who's a draw, there you go, right? And and you can, you know, take that kind of thought, and and he goes into uh, the WWWF, and he challenges Bruno Sammartino. Uh, they headlined the Madison Square Garden a bunch of times in the '60s. Like this is a guy who, like you said, comes from very humble beginnings and just outside Edmonton and you know very quickly within 15 years he's he's the top draw in the NWA or one of the top draws in the NWA he's a he's a made man in the AWA he's wrestling for the WWF although they were a part of the NWA so there's that connection there but then he he's going out uh he went to uh Japan as well I believe in the 60s and this was before a lot of the gaijin talent went to Japan you didn't go there because you wanted to go. You went there because they wanted you. Yeah, he uh, was, you know, he was in demand pretty much everywhere. As you say, he won the, um, he was one of the early AWA champions. You know, he and Vern Gagne had traded that title. Uh, you know, I had no idea uh, that they were great friends <laughs> then and for many years afterward. Uh, again, you know, those guys played the characters so well. Yes. Uh, you know, and they did not rub their friendship in the public's face. You know, you wouldn't see them out together, I'm sure. Um, but they were committed to their craft. Uh, Ganya certainly respected those guys who, you know, had amateur backgrounds as he did. Um, yeah, Kaniski was a big attraction in the Midwest. Um, in Japan, as you say, I would recommend to anybody, fortunately, one match of Kaniski's that does survive is, um, I believe, a summer of 1968 match between Kaniski and Giant Baba. Um, it was just amazing. It was a 60-minute Kaniski performance. He was as good as anybody of his era. Jeez. You know, at going 60 minutes. I mean, that's what he did night after night often. Um, Baba, I mean, I, I lived in Japan for, for a number of years, and uh, I can tell you that Baba was not the most coordinated, skilled <laughs> wrestler in the world. You know, he was a character. The Japanese audience bought into him. In fact, when he was a, a, a visitor to American territories uh, when he was younger you know people recognized okay this guy is different you know this guy is special he may not be a great technician but you know there is something um, but his match with Kaniski I think you could even call it an athletic uh, exhibition I yes Baba was as good as I ever saw him in fact that was probably the best match he ever wrestled and why? Well, Kaniski was a ring general, definitely. Uh, it was a great match. Uh, it ended up, you know, it was one of those matches where they did the 60 minutes and um, they decided to go a few more minutes. Uh, and, you know, Kaniski's role was to, for 
present Baba to the Japanese audience as the best in the world. Uh, it was not even an NWA title defense. Baba had a regional title of his own. Yes. Kaniski came in as the challenger. Uh, he played that role perfectly. So I, I would say, you, you know, who'd have thought that I, I think one of the best matches of the 1960s, Gene Kaniski, Giant Baba. Uh, it's on YouTube. It's it's just a masterpiece, and I, I couldn't recommend it more to anybody. So that was, and correct me if I'm wrong, that was during his title reign with the NWA when he was the champion. He was the heel champion, for lack of a better term. That is right. And as I said, he did not defend the NWA title in that match because the intent was to build up the title that Baba held. Yes. He went in as the champion. He didn't win Baba's title. It was a great match, so he did no disrespect to the NWA title. Yeah. And in those days, you know, who would have known? You know, it's, it's, there, there was no <laughs> internet as we know it now. Uh, so he did his job, but uh, the Japanese audience recognized, you know, he's great, but, you know, if he's that great, and if Baba stayed with him, my goodness, you know, what do we have in Baba? We've got somebody who's an attraction you know, for, for a long, long time. And uh, Kiniski played a huge role. Uh, you know, Baba brought in many challengers for his title. He wrestled some of the greats of the era, guys like San Martino, Crusher, uh, just a lot of great wrestlers. But, you know, when it came to elevating Baba, to keeping him in the ring, keeping him in the ring for 60 minutes and making him look great, I mean, that, that was up to Kiniski. And did a so, wonderful job. Uh, yeah, I, I hope people will search that match. It, it's definitely worth watching. I had mentioned that he was like a heel champion. Now, everybody has to understand, when you were a heel champion back then, and like you were talking about earlier, Steve, it, it's not like the heels today. They're not getting, they weren't getting slapped on the back and people were cheering them because it's the cool thing to do. Mm. When, when you were a heel back then, you were hated. And, and the NWA champion was really used as, as a fantastic foil in all the regional promotions to get their top baby faces over. So you're looking at the list of people that he wrestled as champion. There's Bobo Brazil, there's Dick the Bruiser, Johnny Valentine, Bill Watts, uh, Edward Carpanche up in, in uh, Quebec, uh, Pat O'Connor, he wrestled the Funks. Like he, he's, it was never a situation where he went in to a, a town and quote-unquote buried anybody. He used himself and used the NWA title to really shine these guys up and put on a clinic and really, really elevate them to that to that tippy top tier in their regional territories. Absolutely, and people couldn't wait for Kaniski to come back because when he left, they thought, "Man, our you know regional champion came this close to to winning the world title," um, you know. Kaniski, come on back. You know, our guy's yeah. going to do it next time. I mean, Kaniski was uh, one of the best at doing that. He did not bury people, and he kept his credibility, you know, throughout his reign. So uh, the title meant something when he had it, and, uh, you know, people were just eager to have him come in. It's not like now. I mean, nowadays, uh, you know, if one of the world champions... Uh, you know, has a big match coming up, 
you can usually predict who that challenger is going to be, or there, there may be a few names you have in mind. But yeah. Kaniski, and not just Kaniski, I mean the NWA champions of that era uh, wrestled everybody. And, and, and some of the guys, even if they were regional champions, they weren't, they were not among the best in their profession, shall we say. I mean, yeah. <laughs> he faced everything. He faced guys he had to carry. And often he would carry them for 60 minutes, and then he wrestled guys who were, you know, on his level as attractions, pretty much. Guys like Johnny Valentine, uh, Dick the Bruiser, and, and, and so many others. Um, he was a heel champion, but he was not, uh, you know, considered a, a coward, a sissy. Uh, he was a, a big, rugged guy. And um, as I mentioned in the book, a lot of his matches did end in disqualification, but not because he went over the line, but often he would do little things that would get the challenger so worked up that the challenger would lose it and, you know, get disqualified as a result. People would think, you know, well, our guy, well, you know, he couldn't control it, we understand, but... Well, bring Kaniski back, you know, uh, that title's going to be ours. Uh, completely different from, from the current era. Just something I want to circle back to that you just said is that he would go to these territories and they would want him back. What a lot of people don't realize, and, and again, I'm talking about, you know, there's the recency bias, if you will, and guys like, or guys and women my age who grew up in the late 80s, we saw the whole run of the 90s and in the early 2000s. And then a lot of us kind of fell off. But what we saw as different wrestling territories was WWF and the WCW were fairly similar. Like, yes, their, their quirks were a little bit different. And then you had on the other side of that was ECW, which if that was your thing, that's the kind of thing you liked, I guess. But when Kaniski was the champion and he's going to these different territories, Midwest wrestling was totally different than what they did in Memphis, which was totally different than what they were doing in the Minnesota territory, which was totally different than what they were doing in Eastern Canada or Western Canada was different. The fact that he can go into all these territories, wrestle these different styles and wrestle all comers, if you will, and still be wanted back. I think that speaks more to, to his professionalism and what he wanted to do to elevate these guys than anything. Yeah, I don't think there was any place where he didn't fit in. I mean, you, you can imagine. I mean, would he have worked in Mexico? <laughs> um, well, it, it might have been a harder sell since he was so big and, and many of the wrestlers, you know, headlining there were not. But, you know, even so, uh, you know, when he was attending uh, university in Arizona before the record shows that... Uh, he became a professional. It's pretty clear that he did some wrestling on the side across the border in Mexico. Yes. Uh, under a mask uh, so that, uh, uh, you know, football coaches and the like at Arizona would not be aware. I mean, he, <laughs> he was a young fellow. He needed money. Uh, he did what he had to do. Um, but, you know, would he, what would an, would a Kaniski NWA World Championship match have worked, you know, in Mexico City in the late 60s? Would depend on the challenger, you know, but if, uh, you know, 270-pound Kaniski, a rugged, very good athlete, was wrestling, uh, 
you know, somebody much, much smaller. And some of his challenges were smaller, but, you know, who knows? He, he didn't do it. Uh, he could have. <laughs> um, you know, I think he would have figured it out. He figured it out everywhere else. He went to territories where some of the guys were smaller. Uh, he wrestled everybody. He never seemed out of place. His reputation was such that, uh, you know, people accepted him for what he was. Uh, and, you know, you have to find guys who can work to that level. If not, he has to, to bring them up to that level. But, yeah, I, I don't think he failed anywhere he went. Just to put it in context, when we're talking about him being a big, rugged guy, he's six four and, and 270. Like, this is a mountain of a man, especially w- when you consider, and I'm not trying to to belittle the today's talent, but there's not a whole lot of guys in today's wrestling environment that are six foot plus and are a, a mountain of a man and, and a, a well-trained athlete versed in different, you know, backgrounds. You know, obviously Gene has wrestling and football, right? There's a lot of guys today who are not multi-sport athletes, right? And it, it's something that we've we've lost over the years in wrestling. And I'm not going to debate whether it's good or not. That's not the point of that. But just to put it in context of, of what what he brought to the table. And like you said, he's working with guys who were bigger than him and guys who were, you know, shorter or smaller than him as well. Or he's working with somebody like Bill Watts, who was... You're talking about a big man. Well, Bill Watts was a big man. Say what you will about him. There's no denying that. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I still, you know, in, in the current era, you know, sometimes I have to look twice when I see a wrestler, you know, who goes up to the referee's maybe shoulders or a little higher. Yes. Um, you know, if you've... Knows, I mean, there were there were parts of the world with with weight classes, essentially, you know, beyond the usual heavyweight, junior heavyweight. Um, yeah, I, I kind of miss that era of the uh, larger than life guys, the guys who came from legitimate athletic backgrounds, and uh, not just because that helped them to have the coordination and strength they needed to wrestle, but just because. You know, wrestling had more legitimacy to a lot of people. I mean, if somebody had success as a football player um, or a weightlifter or, or whatever it may have been, um, you know, I, I think it was a good transition. And, you know, I'm thinking of somebody like Sam Muchnick who always presented, a, you know, wrestling as legitimate sport in yes. St. Louis without, um, without insulting fans. I mean, he made an effort to have his wrestling club and his wrestlers really be active in the sporting community. And I mentioned St. Louis because Kaniski was a huge name there. Uh, He lived there during two of his three years as NWA champion. He was presented to audiences there as a legitimate athlete. He would get out and do events with baseball players and, you know, other sports figures. He was considered one of those key sports figures, sports heroes in St. Louis in the 1960s. Yeah, I miss that era. Now, you know, I know WWE will sometimes take a look at legitimate athletes, send them to the Performance Center. 
But the sad fact seems to be if they don't adapt to this WWE style and essentially come to look like every other wrestler on the show, uh, you know, they're going to have a, a, a tough, uh, you know, tough road to hoe. So um, I, I really appreciated that era where the wrestlers were presented often deservedly as uh, great legitimate athletes you know truly rugged guys you know you didn't hear too many stories of uh, other people you know so smaller people on the street challenging larger professional wrestlers for yeah example. <laughs> um yeah I, I i miss that era and kaniski was you know very very much uh, i think in that mindset uh, that whole perception of that era so i think it was uh Late 68 is when he was going to step down as the NWA champion. He ended up losing the titles to Dory Funk Jr. At that time, though, he was on... Like, that travel for the NWA champion was brutal, to say the least. Um, What were you able to find out about kind of what his trials and tribulations were on the NWA travel schedule being the champion? Because I don't imagine that it was very easy for him. Yeah, a lot of wrestlers, you know, after a time just decided, well, that's enough. You know, they would let the NWA directors know you'd better start looking at somebody else to take over. Um, But I think in Kaniski's case, um, you know, a a lot of it had to do with the fact that, um, you know, he had a couple of sons who became very good wrestlers, in fact. Um, But, you know, they were at an age where he didn't want them to be switching schools. You know, he, he wanted the family to settle down. He chose uh, the Pacific Northwest as his base and the Vancouver promotion in particular. Um, so I, I think, yeah, uh, you know, maybe the travel, you know, got very grinding, but I think the, the family was his main consideration. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wanted to be home more. Um, he bought into the. Well, he didn't buy into. Well, he bought into the Vancouver promotion. Uh, um, you know, it was actually during his NWA championship run. Uh, just so he'd have a place to stay, he had his business in Vancouver. So I, I, th- I think that was what ran through his mind more than anything. But but certainly, I think he'd had enough of. Uh, you know, living out of hotels and and seldom getting back to the family. So, and correct me if I'm wrong, but after his his uh, drop in the NWA heavyweight title, he, he did end up spending most of his time in that uh, NWA All Star territory, the Vancouver uh, kind of what what you, Pacific Northwest territory, I guess you would call it. That's where he really just kind of stuck around, and like you said, probably more family to, had to do with that than anything. Yeah. Um, you know, that's when I became aware of Kaniski in uh, late 60s. I saw, uh, you know, All-Star Wrestling was broadcast across Canada. So I, I associated him entirely with the Vancouver promotion at that time and for a long time afterward. But, yeah, that that that's certainly where he stayed when he could. You know, he did take bookings in Winnipeg or St. Louis or... Um, uh, other places afterward. He did return to Japan as well, but 
No, he liked to stay home as much as he could. Uh, he was uh, running the promotion with a couple of partners in, in Vancouver. And, uh, you know, he had had enough of, of living out of suitcases, definitely. Earlier in the program, you had mentioned just offhand that he uh, maybe was under a mask a little bit in, in Mexico when he was close to, uh, close to the border there. But that's not the only time he had a mask on. Yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, but he he did a little stint as the Crimson Knight under the mask in in St. Louis for, I think there was uh, remember reading here like six months or so. Yeah, um... <laughs> and that's way out there too, because I mean, even Kaniski under a mask is like <laughs> you know you can't really mistake him for for, for very many people. Yeah, he uh, he was under a mask for a time in St. Louis, as I recall. Um, you know, I, I don't remember every detail pertaining to that, but uh, <laughs> he he. I, I think he was one of those guys under a mask, but people knew who he was. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm just reading. He's he's so or so in how you pronounce it. His mask to his tights. So you couldn't, like, you couldn't just unmask him. You basically had to tear his tights off to get the mask. It just, it's, it just seems like something that he would do as, as that kind of a character. <laughs> yeah, and interesting. I mean, St. Louis was not a territory with a lot of gimmicks. No, no, they were not. Uh, so, you know, Kaniski could pull off something like that. But, um, you know, some of what we saw as wrestling fans was... A little bit on the silly side, but I think Kaniski could, you know, keep credibility even while you know playing a role like that. But yeah, interestingly, um, you know, I, I hadn't thought of that in some time. As I say, it is a while since I worked on that book. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, you bring back a memory. He, I, I think Bill Miller was another guy uh, under a mask in St. Louis. I mean, another very good athlete. Um, uh, <laughs> I, I don't remember the storyline exactly, but I think it led to. I, I would have to check the timeline. <laughs> well, yeah, we'll, we'll just go with that at least. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, Kaniski under a mask. I mean, some would say to hide some of his features. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know, but I, I, I think people were were pretty sure who was under that mask. Yeah, it's just it's all the fun of trying to get it off. Eh? That's you're you're working for that just you know, the build up to get that release, right? It's just kind of funny. So after he uh he drops the NWA title, he he moves back home or closer to home, but he's still very involved with the NWA. Um to the point of he was uh involved with the Starcades, the early Starcades, but he wasn't wrestling. He was he would get brought in as like a ref or or he teamed with his sons, I believe, uh, in the main event of the first Starcade. Um, kind of later in his life, what, what was his relationship with the NWA, and, and what do you think he wanted to contribute to that, if you could speak on that? Yeah, I, I think as long as Sam Muchnick was associated with the NWA uh, in any way at all, Kaniski was, uh, was willing to, to keep that connection. Um. You know, he was, yeah, as you say, he was invited, you know, on occasion to appear as, you know, a legend from the past, shall we say, to 
referee a match or you know make an appearance i think he was was happy to do that and it was a good chance for him sometimes to meet with friends from his past especially luthes yes he had just the utmost respect for him but anytime he had a chance to meet thes or the funk brothers um, you know, he had a long history, as you mentioned earlier, with the Funks, uh, dating back to the early 50s and Dory Funk Sr. So sometimes it was a good opportunity for him to, to meet up with old friends. You know, some of the people in the audience would, would remember him very well. Others would probably, you know, learn about him for the first time. Yes. He made those return appearances, but... Um, yeah, I, I think that's something he was glad to do. He loved to stay at home, but uh, you know, I think he didn't mind getting back you know, in the spotlight uh, now and again. Earlier on, you were mentioning you know wrestlers today and their height will say um, difference with the referees that uh, are in matches today. But there's there's one match, and you can go back and watch this one on your various networks, if you will. But in NWA Starcade in '83, uh, I believe it was. It was Ric Flair versus Harley Race for the uh, NWA Championship in a steel cage, and um, and Gene Kaniski was the special guest referee for that match. But the only reason I'm bringing that up is he's the ref, and he's quite a bit bigger than Flair. Although, mind you, Harley Race was a big gentleman himself. But there's one GIF that goes around, and I still I see it almost monthly, where he's leaning in, and I think it's. Uh, Flair's got race in the chokehold, I believe, and he comes back with an elbow like that, and Gene takes it in the nose and does the, the biggest flatback bump. It's just, it's so funny, and just one of those things that even today, right, in, in the modern age of wrestling, it's still something that goes around. Just, it's, I don't know why that tickles me so much, but it does. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, I've, I've watched, uh, yeah, some of his work as a referee. <laughs> um Maybe that wasn't where he excelled, but um, yeah, it, it was great to see him, you know, with with, with some of those other guys. And so I was I was actually looking something up as you were talking. So <laughs> I might be off the mark a little bit, but that's yeah, okay. It's, uh, you know, he he also did some refereeing in um, Winnipeg. I mean, I'm not talking the Condello thing in '92, but um, I, I think. One time he was invited to referee a show. It might have been in Brandon um, or in Winnipeg. So he did a little refereeing on occasion and, uh, <laughs> you know, sometimes got involved physically a little bit. Yes. Yeah, it, that's the old wrestler uh, mindset, I guess, if you will. Right. You're You're never really retired, they always say. You know, look at Terry Funk, how many times he's retired. Over the years, right? A, a wrestler is almost never fully retired, but yeah, even in a in a wrestling or in a referee portion, you still want to get involved. You still you get that itch, and you just want to help out some way to make the match. Yeah, you know when you refereed the match between Flair and uh, Race, uh, as I recall, you know yeah he got knocked down in the match. He got up. I think he counted the pin for Flair. And from that point, he just quickly shook both wrestlers' hands, I think. He left the ring. I mean, he, he knew what he was there to do. Yes. The match was over. Uh, you know, he, you 
I, I, th I think he realized the spotlight shouldn't be on the referee, even if he is a former champion himself. Um, you know, he, I think, took the role seriously. I think he generally played a fair-minded referee. It was just maybe something out of his element a little bit, but uh, it was good to see him. There's one other thing I came across in my notes, and it was uh, Slambury93, and he was the cornerman for uh, Dory Funk Jr., and Dory Funk Jr. was wrestling Nick Balkenwinkel, who had Vergagne in his corner. So, it, again, you're looking at guys who've, who've wrestled each other and built this friendship over over their years, you know, Vergagne and uh, Gene Kniski, and they're still on opposite sides. Right, they still they still kept the facade up of we don't like each other. We 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 wrestled. We got this rivalry. I just think it's funny that even still as managers, they were still, you know, keeping it keeping it in house, if you will. Yeah, I I remember that match. Um, you know, and yeah, I, I don't. I mean, Ganya and Bachwinkle were rivals forever, but yes, you know, I, I I guess it's a. The enemy of my enemy is my friend, maybe, is what that whole... I don't remember what the whole build was, but I could see that being a thing. Yeah, an AWA, NWA thing, maybe. Yes, that's true, too, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, some fans definitely enjoyed seeing some of those older guys. I don't remember the match particularly well. I don't think at that point it was... Certainly they were a little bit past their peaks, but... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't think they did any insult to the wrestling business, and I'm sure a lot of people appreciated seeing those guys. Just in, in terms of, I don't want to say a legacy, because that's an odd way to see it, but in terms of the lineage of the NWA, where would you put him as as the champion in terms of how he kind of carried the promotion and, and kind of how he left his mark? And I know there's the NWA still exists in, in a form today, but it's not what it once was, and I'm not sure that it ever will be, although you never say never, especially in wrestling. Look at what we've seen over the years. But in terms of, of the champions and the type of, of individuals that really excelled in the NWA, where would you put him as kind of like the, the top tier of the talent between the Thezes, um, just everybody who was associated with the title, the Flares, etc.? Well... You know, if we're looking at the era, you know, from the late 40s, the Orville Brown, Luthez era, all the way to, I guess you could say the Ric Flair era. Because that's really uh, when it, up to then, is is kind of the same, and then it really changed after the WCW merger. Yeah. You know, I, I it's it, it, pretty much, I would say they were all great. I mean... <laughs> at least the guys who held the title for any length. I mean, uh, you know, other than, I mean, my goodness, Fez is probably in a class of his own. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I would put Kiniski, you know, I, I think we could nitpick a little bit and say, well, you know, this guy's era was longer, you know, this guy, you know, it's hard not to put, I think, Dory Funk Jr. also very, very high yes. on the yep. list. Um, you know, certainly 
when you use the word great, uh, names like Harley Race, Pat O'Connor, Terry Funk, Jack Briscoe come to mind. I I think I would put Kaniski in that same category. Yeah, I I agree. Um, Luthez was amazing. I mean, uh, probably you have to start with him. But I, I think I would put Kaniski in that very, very next tier with guys like Harley Race and Jack Briscoe and uh, some of the other great story funk junior. Um, you know, I, uh, interesting, I, I mentioned earlier Watson. I mean, as far as Canada is concerned, Watson is probably a greater attraction, but certainly was not one of the most successful NWA champions. He was a transitional champion. Yes. Uh, Luthez actually had a ski accident in 1956. Um, he had another wrestler in mind that he wanted to, to pass the title to, but as a favor to Frank Tunney, uh, they agreed on Watson. Watson ended up holding that title for about eight months. Did nothing to disgrace it. Uh, Dick Hutton was uh, just an amazing grappler but not particularly successful as NWA champion. So I think if you leave guys like that out of the equation and just, uh, you know, stick to the others, Kaniski <laughs> is very high up. I, I, I'm sure I should have mentioned Buddy Rogers also. I think he would be in that uh, top tier with guys like Thez um, and Dory Funk Jr., so if I, if I had to put three at the top, it might be Thez, Rogers, Funk. And and then I think I would have Kaniski in that next group. Yes. Uh, very, very close to that top level. So when, when, and I know we're kind of backtracking a little bit, and I'm, that's okay in my opinion, because this is tremendous information that even I didn't know. But when Kaniski dropped the title to Dory Funk Jr., was that... Because a lot of the a lot of the times, and like you said, the champion would handpick a challenger or have a very large say in who the next champion was going to be. Did he handpick Dory Funk Jr. or was that somebody who the NWA wanted and he was good with it? Or, or do you know anything about that transition? Yeah, um, you know who knows when when you come right down to it, but but definitely. Kaniski was a big backer of Dory Funk Jr. I mean, Funk Jr. had wrestled in Vancouver with Kaniski, um, you know, earlier in the 1960s. Kaniski was a friend of that Funk family. Yes. Um, you know, he, uh, Gene, really wanted to pass that title to Dory Funk Jr. Um, and I, you know, I, I don't think it took a lot of convincing uh, to get the NWA to go along with that. Uh, you know, Funk Senior was certainly well respected uh, as a promoter and especially as a wrestler. Funk Junior had certainly earned his wings by that point. I mean, he was yes. recognized as one of the top guys in the world. So, you know. Who suggested what first? I'm not sure. But Kaniski, you know, he wanted out. 
you know, I'm sure he was asked whether there was anybody he thought would be a good replacement. Yeah. And definitely Funk was the guy that uh, he would have suggested. So um, worked out very well, very well, definitely. Uh, but again, who knows what goes on in those boardrooms or at those meetings. The other thing I wanted to ask, and I'm not sure if you would know this or not, but there's always been the tale of the NWA champion would put up a certain amount of money because he was the title holder. He was responsible for quote unquote, the brand. He was responsible for, um, having a good showing of the NWA and not doing any funny business. We'll say, do you know if, if that was instituted when he was a champion or, or, um, or did that come in later years? No, I think, I think that came in earlier on. Okay. And, to be honest, I'm not sure whether Kaniski had to put up that bond. I mean, I, I suspect maybe his friendship with Sam Muchnick over the years maybe gave him a special consideration. Yes. That. I, I just don't know. But, um, yeah, that uh, that bond, I think, had been in place previous to Kaniski's reign. And I've heard different figures through. And, you know, it's one of those things, wrestling legends grow and grow. So, you know, you hear... Maybe it was ten grand, maybe it was twenty five grand, maybe it was whatever. But it just to me is super interesting, you know, whether he had to or not. Still, the fact that they're going to put their like the title at the time on a guy again, like I said, from from an outskirts town in Canada, it just, it's mm-hmm. so impressive. Uh, <laughs> it was a different era for sure. Uh, just kind of as we start to wind down this portion of the segment, um, what did you find out, or what was the most surprising part about Gene Kaniski? Whether I'm not talking about his his wrestling life, but maybe his personal life. Uh, what was the most interesting, or yeah, we'll say interesting portion of of that that you found in your research? Something that you didn't didn't come to expect, and you found out uh, during the research. You know, I, I would think what surprised me most is actually what kind of enticed me to write the book. Um, it was when I was researching the history of wrestling in the Northwest that I came to realize, you know, some of these guys were a lot more than you would have expected. They were great characters, but uh, they were very broad minded people people with a lot of interests a lot of accomplishments so uh, when I came to look at Kaniski's upbringing you know just how um, living through the depression in that uh, pretty tough setting of of central Alberta sort of tested him and you know how he came to make decisions or how he really used that to his advantage. I mean, I I became very impressed, you know, when I saw that, uh, okay, he got into this amateur sport, this is how he reached the top in his region. Oh, okay, he was an excellent football player. Oh, I I didn't know he, you know, had a, a scholarship to a major American university. Oh, I don't know how he set this goal and actually achieved it. Just, you know, the more I learned about him, the more I decided he was somebody who needed to have a serious biography written. 
of, of his life. I mean, had it been just the wrestling and the character, I, I wouldn't have been interested in, in researching his life, particularly in writing the book. So I, I just came to realize, oh, he had a lot of, you know, amazing friends. I mean, he chose his friends carefully. He influenced a lot of people. So I think it was just the breadth of his life, his accomplishments out of the ring, uh, his interests out of the ring, all of that, I think, uh, really is what surprised me most and, and drove me to, to get into researching his life more fully and, and, and writing the bio. Now, he had two sons, uh, Kelly and Nick. They both ended up getting into professional wrestling. Uh, did you have much contact with them throughout the course of the book? And, and what were they able to kind of give you as as behind-the-scenes, if you will, insight into uh, the man that was Gene Kaniski? Yeah, they were great. I mean, anything I wanted to know, they answered. I, you know, went up uh, to visit. I mean, Kelly, more than Nick. I mean, Nick is... Uh, living on an island most of the time and is very, very busy with his work. Um, but I, I got up to see Kelly. Um, you know, I, I talked to both, uh, both of Gene's sons. Um, yeah, they provided just tremendous insight. They were excellent resources. I've, I've got to say as well that other members of the Kaniski clan were also very helpful. Okay. His, siblings uh, were not alive at the time that I, I uh, researched and wrote the book but I, I talked to a number of his uh, uh, you know nieces or nephews for example um, I, I visited with one uh, nephew in particular when I was in Alberta I mean the Kaniskis in general were super helpful and, and uh, Nick and Kelly in particular they provided a lot of insight into you know growing up uh, with uh, Gene Kaniski as their dad. Um, you know they talked about how he gently influenced them. He insisted <laughs> they get uh, an education. Uh, they were very good uh, amateur athletes in their own right. Uh, made the transition to professional wrestling, and it was great to hear a lot of stories from them uh, about growing up. Uh, with, with Gene Kaniski as their father. Now, and correct me if I'm wrong, is Nick the one who owns the tavern in, is it Washington? Yeah, Nick owns um, Kaniski's Reef in uh, Point Roberts, Washington, which is just uh, south of Vancouver. Okay. Um, and Nick lives on uh, a neighboring island. He, you know, gets to Point Roberts by boat, uh, he uh, seems to be doing great, but yeah, he's been a, a bar owner for uh, over 30 years in Washington I, State. I was, just in my research, I was reading, you know, that Gene would hang out there and a lot of the wrestlers would go hang out there. And, and I think I read when he had passed away, they had the wake there and there was tons of people. And it's kind of like, uh, it's, it's a meeting place even still. I think they all congregate on the anniversary of his passing still at that bar to this day well uh, uh, you know we, we had a, a book event there um, before the pandemic oh no way yeah and uh, you know people remembered Gene Kaniski we had a, a nice group that 
came out, we talked about Kaniski. So, uh, yeah, there, there still is that association uh, between Gene and, and Nick Sparr. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a fun place to go to if anybody's in Point Roberts or in British Columbia or <laughs> plans to travel to that place. I don't know. I Obviously, with the pandemic, I haven't been there in some time. Yes. But, uh, you know, when I was there last, you would see Gene Kaniski memorabilia. I mean, I had a great time when I was there. I've been there two or three times. Um, and, yeah, Gene was... Uh, was a presence there, shall we say, during his uh, <laughs> retired life. And, and also, yeah, I mean, Point Roberts is an exclave. I mean, it's separated from the rest of Washington State. It sort of hangs down from um, the western part of Greater Vancouver. Uh, you know, back in the main part of Washington, in Blaine, Washington, where Gene lived, also he was a pretty, um, I think, uh, he, he was a steady presence, shall we say, at one or two of the bars there. Yeah. Also helping out, and uh, a, a lot of wrestlers came by, and a lot of people came by to talk to Gene, and maybe to talk to some of the other wrestlers too. So I guess, and this is an maybe a difficult question to ask, but I'll see if I can get an answer out of you. What what is your biggest impression coming or that you're coming away with in terms of Gene Kaniski? First off, his his personal impact, like what he meant to the people around him, we'll say. And then, what do you think is his legacy in professional wrestling? Well, I think if you go to Blaine, Washington, where he lived, um, you're going to hear a lot of stories from people about how he quietly influenced them. You know, whether through helping them to get in shape. I mean, he was uh, certainly devoted to keeping in shape in his later years. Yeah. And he helped others to do that as well. You know, he lent money to people who needed it. Uh, you know, he touched a lot of people in that small town. And, uh, you know, on the, on the personal side of his life, I think that is a legacy he would be very proud of. I mean, there are people who just are very thankful for the role he had in their lives, um, the time he gave to them. You know, he was always open to speaking to people who wanted to talk to him about wrestling or people who maybe needed a little advice, and he didn't <laughs> push it on them, but... Um, you know, he was available to friends and to others, I think, who saw him as uh, an inspiration a little bit or somebody who might be able to help them out. Uh, you know, as far as the wrestling is concerned, uh, well, I, I think he's somebody Canadians are not soon going to forget. Um, he is one of those great NWA champions. I mean, if we look back at uh, wrestlers who made a difference, wrestlers who stood out during the 20th century, I, his name is going to stay on that list. Yes. Um, you know, I don't think we have to argue over whether he's, you know, higher than somebody else on the totem pole or not. I mean, he is certainly remembered and I think will 
be remembered in the future as one of those great NWA champions, a guy who wrestled everybody, um, took the wrestling business seriously, gave his best in the ring, kept in shape, prepared for his matches, prepared for his interviews. Um, you know, I think he's going to be held up as a model of what a great champion was uh, yes. for a long, long time. And he was, you know, the NWA champion, the AWA champion. He was not the WWF champion because he moved on. But uh, Well, and at that time, nobody is beating Bruno. Hmm. Well, you know, maybe, maybe for a time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I did talk to Bruno before he passed away about Kaniski. He had tremendous respect for Kaniski. And I don't think there was anything in our conversation that suggested that at least Bruno would have uh, uh, objected to dropping the title for a time to Kaniski. But, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the Northeast promoters recognized Bruno was a huge draw. You know, if they could have worked out a program with Kaniski winning the title that would have made Bruno even bigger, well, it, it might have happened. I mean, he could well have. Had he, had he stayed longer, who yeah. knows, it might have happened, but he held two of those major championships, and especially the one that meant... Uh, meant he was the top wrestler in the world for for three years yes Um, he won't be forgotten for that to me his his legacy quote-unquote is just how much of a success he was right like you were saying he set goals and he he met them he wasn't a guy who you know had a mediocre wrestling career and tried to parlay that into other things he was a legitimate you know, top tier superstar for the entirety that he wanted to do it essentially. And to me, it's just so fascinating to see the level of dedication, the level of commitment, and then the level of success that he achieved throughout the years. And like you said, you're talking about, you know, top wrestlers from the 20th century. You cannot talk about him. Yeah. And again, one of the interesting things to me is that, I mean, wrestling was not the center of his life. It was his job. Yes. Uh, Whatever he chose to do, he wanted to be among the best at. He chose wrestling. He realized that, you know, I can do this. I will give it my best. I think I can make a good living at it. I think this is the best thing for my, earlier on, my future family. I, I think he made decisions in that way. He was not addicted to wrestling. Yes. He was addicted to setting goals and and doing his best to achieve them. So, you know, had he decided to stay with football, I mean, he would have had to have a discussion, I think, with his knee about that. (laughs) I think he's one of those guys, and you can say this about a number of impressive people, whatever he chose, chances of success would, would have been very, very high. He chose wrestling. Uh, took it seriously, respected the profession, was demanding of others, definitely, yep. had high expectations. Um, but that, as much as anything, led to his success in wrestling and, and really makes him one of those um, wrestling figures that uh, I think is worthy of a serious biography. 
and one that you wrote and a tremendous job you did do. Now, I know that we're not going to get a whole lot out of you in regards to your upcoming project. Um, but if there is there anything you'd like to speak about on that or is that very much on the hush hush for right now? Uh, well, as far as wrestling is concerned, my current project, I'll say, is another biography. I'll say it is of another great wrestler from the prairies. Uh, somebody who could be characterized, in fact, as a friend of Kaniski's, maybe not one of his best friends, but there was a lot of respect on both sides. Um, I don't want to mention his name now, but... Um, well, you got to leave them with the teaser. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'll say there is a Winnipeg connection. Mm. <laughs> um, but uh, just uh, you know, another fellow who... You know, lived an amazing life, and I think it needs to be documented and remembered. So um, I am coming to the end of that. In fact, I'm writing captions for photographs right now, still getting a, a few permissions. But I think, yeah, the project um, that I'm referring to will be a biography in some ways similar to the Kaniski project, at least uh, in terms of the quality of the person's life and the enjoyment I'm getting out of working on this project. So I'll, I'll just say, I'll, I'll leave that at that. But uh, Imaginations uh, can run wild. The book should be available, I hope, not too far into next year. Okay, and you have another book in the works right now in regards to the American political system, I believe, as well, right? Yeah, I am, uh, uh, yes. Um, Although that's a whole mess in itself right now. Yeah, it uh, just has to do with my qualms regarding the two-party system in the United States. Uh, um, I'll be busy with that for a few more months at least, but yeah, that is definitely in the works. And uh, in terms of those books, where can people go to find you to get more information about uh, those books that you have written and the ones that you have upcoming? Well... uh, Go to my website, stephenverrier.com, is V-E-R-R-I-E-R, and Stephen with a V. Or, you know, Amazon seems to be everywhere, so that yes. definitely works too. <laughs> and uh, I'll, I will put on tinyurl.com slash grapplingwithcanada uh, links to your books as well for the Amazon site, so people can go ahead and uh, take advantage of getting those books, because, like I said, it Gene is one of those guys that I'm surprised it took this long almost to, to have a biography, but you did such a tremendous job and it's one, I know I say it almost every time I have authors on the program, but it's because there's such amazing authors like yourself that do such great work kind of getting to the, the actual people behind the story, right? Whether it was Heath or Bertrandy bear with the Pat Patterson book, especially or Pat LaPrade with the various books that he's written or, or yourself as well. just, I, just, I can't say enough good things. For me, as a, a guy who's missed a lot of it in terms of the the real history of Canada, it's so important for me to have these books written that I can go back and read about these characters. And that's really what inspired me to do this program. So thank you very much for everything that you've done. Well, I appreciate that. And uh, as I mentioned off the air, um, I enjoyed listening to your previous shows with the writers that you you mentioned. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, it, it's you know it's it, it's a lot of fun trying to reconstruct you know 
of somebody's life. Yes. <laughs> but even more, finding out that uh, it's a lot more than you imagined. Uh, you know, there are certainly more great Canadian wrestlers deserving of, you know, serious uh, <laughs> looks back at their life. But, uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun doing the Kaniski project and uh, it's fun working on the project I, you know the, the mystery project I'm yes the on. mystery one <laughs> well I'm certainly going to be looking forward to that not just because of the Winnipeg connection but uh, because of honestly the, the work that you put into everything so I'm looking forward to that I hope everyone else is as well uh, before I let you go do you have any closing uh, thoughts on either Kaniski or just the writing of, of wrestling history in general um, you know I, I I hope there will be a listener to a listener or two who will get the idea. You know, um, there is this Canadian wrestler from the past that I know something about, or that I've heard something about. I mean, I am hoping at least uh, a couple of listeners there will, you know, take it upon themselves maybe to consider documenting some of the history of. Uh, the wrestling business in Canada as well. I mean, I can't say enough about people like you mentioned Pat and Bertrand and, uh, you know, Heath and Vance Nevada is another one. Yes. I mean, uh, you know, I, I hope maybe one or two other people listening who maybe had a connection with the business or even didn't will, you know, maybe get an idea you know, of documenting some of this uh, important history that we really ought to preserve. Um, there are a lot more great Canadian wrestlers, um, as I've said, whose lives were just amazing. I mean, not just their lives in wrestling, um, but, you know, the whole stories of their lives, their settings. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping we can... Uh, you know, preserve as much as possible. Unfortunately, most of the wrestling promoters didn't do it as far as the video footage is concerned. Yes. But, uh, you know, the longer we wait, the harder it's going to be. It's, I think, great that you are doing this show and doing your part to, to preserve, um, you know, some of this history, and I hope others get on board as well. Now, before I totally let you go, we were talking off-air a little bit about my chronology moving forward in regards to releases uh without giving away who we talked about and who's already on that list uh what are your thoughts on some names that i should be covering for this program uh, and i'm not gonna i'm gonna quantify this with they may or may not already be on on the programming board that i have well you can't see because this is an audio program but and my programming board ahead of me but please steve go ahead uh great question um and, and also, I, I think the monthly format is ideal because it really lets things sink in, you know. Yes. Um, so I would, you know. Sorry to put you on the spot. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, uh, well, I would say Yvonne Robert is a gimme. Um, you know, Yvonne Robert is one of those legendary Canadian wrestling figures um, and I'm sure that Pat and Bertrand would have much to say about them and uh, I'm sure there are other people who would as well um, since I started in Quebec definitely Johnny Rougeau 
Um, I definitely would recommend somebody like uh, Jack Taylor, who was just a, a seminal Canadian heavyweight champion, just a, a major figure that a lot of people are not aware of and a great influence on uh, many Canadian wrestlers to follow. Um, again, the farther back you go, the harder it gets, but Earl McCready is definitely a top Canadian wrestler from the past. Um, you know, the Cormier brothers in New Brunswick, uh, Leo Burke and his, his brothers, uh, I think would make for just a, a great story. And, um, you know, they represent that whole region, I think, as far as wrestling history is concerned. Yeah, I, I'd love to hear about certain promotions or areas as well. I mean, I, I think the story of Hamilton, Ontario as a breeding ground for wrestlers of uh, previous decades would be fascinating. You know, I think uh, a story on the Tolis brothers who hailed from um, Hamilton would, would be great. I mean, uh, there are a lot of key figures um, I'd say the stomper out of Alberta would be another one. I mean, um, my goodness, uh, there, there, there are a lot of uh, stories, a lot of wrestlers, I think, that people would really enjoy hearing more about. Uh, and, uh, you know, a lot of these uh, wrestlers, I think, are still well-remembered by, by many, many Canadians. So for the listeners at home, I had to no-sell much of that list so me not saying anything in regards to that there's a reason for it and uh, you're going to hear that in the coming months and uh, and years of this program uh, like I said we've storyboarded this thing for for quite a ways out and uh, yeah I will say uh, you got something to look forward to definitely on, on off your list so once again Steve I can't thank you enough for your time today uh, honestly just such a treat to talk to you and uh, I'm really looking forward to your next your next set of books that come out so for that, thank you very much for joining the program, and uh, I, I, don't, I don't know what else to say. Um, historians and authors like you, that's that's what people like me need, and like I said before, right, it's just the more of us that there are, I think, the better we can do, or a better job we can do on, on really getting the history of, of professional wrestling in Canada and the impact of Canada on the professional wrestling industry as a whole out there for others to to enjoy and hey if one person is inspired by this program to to read more in depth into somebody and maybe they're the one who writes that book or maybe they're the ones who start that blog or start a hey i'm more than thrilled and that's that's all i can say in regards to that yeah well i appreciate the kind words and i i I, yeah i I hope that uh, somebody will you know follow up and uh, it's uh a major task, I think, to research and and uh, do something with a mind to producing something serious and worthwhile. But I'm sure there's some listeners. I mean, they're, they're listening. It, it means they are <laughs> thinking uh, attentive to the history of wrestling in Canada. There are a lot of stories to be told, and uh, I appreciate your role in, in keeping this thing alive as well. Thanks again for your time today, Steve. You're more than welcome. Now, before we move on with the program and our next guest, AC from Maple Leaf Wrestling, I thought it was important to discuss a little bit further and something that Steve and myself had glossed over in the previous interview. Now, 
yes, Gene moved back to Canada to be with his sons. Unfortunately, there is a specific reason for that. And we didn't really get into it in the interview with Steve. Although in his book, uh, he goes into it in a lot better detail than uh, I could ever get to on this program. But I felt the need to discuss it just because it kind of feeds into the story of the kind of man that that Gene Kaniski was. So uh, Gene Kaniski was married throughout the course of his wrestling career or the early course of his wrestling career. Unfortunately, and you know that kind of was the wrestling heavyweight champion lifestyle at the time, if you will. He wasn't what you would call the most faithful husband. I'm not here to judge or pass judgment or say if that's right or wrong way to live your life, but those are the facts. And unfortunately, it led to the divorce of himself and his wife. Uh, His ex-wife would later on, unfortunately, uh, end her life. And that kind of is what led to Gene coming home to spend time and uh, look after his children. So, you know, it doesn't matter really what what I think or what anybody else thinks about his personal choices in relationships while he was on the road, but it does certainly showcase uh, the fact that he was a loving father and and came back to deal with his sons and be with them and, and love and support them in their great time of tragedy. And, you know, unfortunately, we've seen it throughout history and we still see it to this day that uh, fathers and some mothers have a hard time, we'll say, caring for their children. I'm just going to leave it at that. But I think that I just wanted to put that in there, and I think that that speaks volumes to uh, Gene Kaniski as a person, uh, what he meant or what his family meant to him in terms of his two sons. Now, before I bring on my interview with AC, I'm going to play some more classic Gene Kaniski audio. Now, in the interview that you just heard with Steve, we talked a lot about Gene Kaniski's showmanship. Now, this interview that you're going to hear is from the CBC in 1978. And when you're talking about Gene Kaniski and a man of self-promotion, obviously billing himself as Canada's greatest athlete, for example, you will find no better proof than that in this interview here. So I'm going to play this. Once again, this is from the CBC in 1978. And then on the other side, I'm going to get to my interview with AC from MapleLeafWrestling.com. And now I would like to introduce a man who is no mean cook himself, but is mean at everything else he does. In fact, he may be the meanest man in Canada. I don't want to be disagreeable, but first of all, I'd like to straighten you out one thing, Zowski. I haven't even said that, your name, Kaniski. They know who I am. They, they know don't I know am. who you are. You're nothing. If Prime Minister Trudeau are to walk down the street, they'd say, the guy with the crew cut is Kaniski. I don't know who the other fellow is. But listen. <laughs> this is Gene Kaniski, yeah, if you they didn't know. know. Does anybody know? Anybody know? <laughs> first of all, I have to say this. Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada is the most beautiful city in North America, and that includes San Francisco. Right, now you're talking about cooking. We always have these fancy band cooking shows. Now, I am a super cook. This is just for you ladies. I don't want your husbands watching. Now, everybody likes to have pork sausage occasionally, right? All right, the first thing they do, they burn them. 
because pork has to be well done. Well, what you do, ladies, the night before, you get your pork sausages, put them in some boiling water salted, boil them for 15 minutes, let them cool off, put them in the fridge. And then when you want them in the morning, you just put them on the frying pan, and with a nice golden brown, you serve your husband, and they are... Okay, go ahead. What do you want to say? Did, did, did you cook... You don't mind if I ask questions from time to time? Certainly, providing they're intelligent. They, of course they're intelligent. Go ahead. Did you cook shrimps jambalaya for the wrestlers' Christmas dinner? Yes, I certainly did. That's one of my many recipes. I've got so many, like chicken. You know, chicken is the cheapest, cheapest thing you can buy. But I can make chicken just super duper. Why are you cooking for all these wrestlers? You're supposed to hate them. You get in the ring and you bash each other's brains out all the time. They go to high school. They're high school wrestlers. They wrestle me. They come over to my house. They flock over to my house. They raid my Oh, these aren't... All the, the, yes, they, the big guys. No, they're 15, 16, 17 years old, but they are wrestlers and they're super studs. Yeah. Oh, I thought all, all the pros all get together and forgave each other at Christmas time. Well, I probably do, but uh, I don't forgive anybody. I carry a grudge. In fact, any grudge I have, I'm going to carry to my grave. And if you get smarter with me, I probably never forgive you, Peter. You think that would scare me for one minute? No, I don't, I don't believe in uh, frightening anybody. When I say I'm going to do something, I just go out and do it. You're a little nervous right now. I noticed you're twitching and shaking and shivering. Hold out your hand. Look at this, how cool I am. Here we are, national TV. Two fellow Canadians look at you shaking like a leaf. You need a tranquilizer. You'd, you'd, be, you'd, be, sh you'd be shaking too if you were sitting next I, to you. Here, I'll come on. I'll have to go along with you, Peter, because at times I've been known I've to seen be quite you. violent. Right. Violent, yes. But the fans here in Toronto got back at you one night. On numerous occasions, they've uh, gotten back to me, and, and but that is one of the hazards of my chosen occupation or profession. I feel like when you go in the coal mine, hey, uh, the odds of getting killed are twice as high as any other profession. But nobody feels sorry for the uh, coal miners, but we all feel sorry for the police department, those guys who gave us speeding tickets, you know. Tony Benefit's doing a concert, a Benefit concert for them. So? <laughs> they're nice, they're, they must be nice guys. What makes you think they're nice guys? They've always been nice to me. You know what happened to me? I was having coffee before the show. I am not lying. I would never lie to my fellow Canadians. I'm having coffee at a Greek restaurant, mind you. Two officers of the law come walking. They know who I am. I'm sitting there. So they had two coffees. So the proprietor said, no, 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 boys, it's on the house. So said, well, thank you. So right away, my first thought is, they're on the take. And then those two fellows were probably giving me a ticket. You know, but they, they took the coffee without putting down the quarters. You should never do it. Once you take two bits, then it's 50 cents, and then it's a dollar, two bucks, and all of a sudden say, why not go for the big bundle? Millions. You know, we have scandals every day, you know, right? Did you pay for your coffee? 80 cents. 80 cents for a cup of coffee? I'd a piece of pie, too. <laughs> <laughs> what about the night? I want to talk about Toronto fans, because didn't they set fire to the ring one night to get after you? Oh, Peter, I'll tell you something. Uh, picture is worth a thousand words. There's a film clip. Uh, uh, Dick Cutler's wrestling uh, Whipper Billy Watson. It's probably in the archives. This had to be about 1957. And uh, the chairs were flying. Oh, it's just a, a horrible thing, situation. I just don't know why they want to desecrate the Lord's temple because my body is the Lord's temple. Therefore, I always have to protect uh, my temple. But oh, it's it just one of those deals. But on numerous occasions, uh, they've tried to set me in fire and uh, mutilate my body. And it, it, it is sometimes I wonder, you know, and as strange as it may seem, I cannot stand crowds unless there are at wrestling matches. <laughs> are the fans here, the fans here really hate you? No, uh... Yes, they I, do, Gene. No, no, really, no, no. Well, I see how steady my hand is right loving, now. Loving, loving. Do you folks hate me? Yeah. 
do better if you could get that twinkle out of your eye, you know. They are not here. How many fights did you have with Whipper Billy Watson, the the real hero of of Toronto fans? You mean God? Yes. I used to call him God. You know, I'll tell you what. I, for example, I wrestled him 14 consecutive Wednesdays in London, Ontario, and for the 14 times I wrestled him, the matches never finished because they always end up in a riot, and we had 14 consecutive sellouts. Now, you figure that one out. Uh, well, I could hint at being able to figure it out by suggesting, with my hands trembling a little bit, by suggesting that... Has anybody that... ever told you have beautiful blue eyes? <laughs> Very pleased to be joined on the line right now by AC from MapleLeafWrestling.com. AC, how are you doing? I'm uh, I'm doing as well as you can with for a man who has two rugrats and uh, and some warm weather outside. We uh, we just bought the kids some bikes, so it's that's that's where we're at in life right now. Very nice. Uh, so AC, I wanted to get you on the program today because obviously we're talking Gene Kaniski, but you are very much a big proponent of his Toronto work. Um, before we get into that, though, can you give me a little bit of background about your relationship with the Toronto wrestling scene? Uh, sure. Well, I grew up in Toronto. I was a fan during the, the mid-Atlantic days, you know, in the, the late 70s, early 80s. So, you know, for a few years there, I was a big fan. But really, I rediscovered it about 20 years later. Uh, you know, I, I found the message boards and started meeting some other old, older fans. And that's kind of how it got started. And the, the site, you know, we have the site, maplefreshing.com. So it's just progressed as we've learned and, and delved back into the history. So now it's, it's a little more of a, you know, a history focus, uh, especially on the 50s and the 60s, uh, which was a really exciting time here in Toronto, as you know. So I find it fascinating. You'll go like different sections of the country were very we'll say busy at different decades right so for you guys in toronto it was the 50s and 60s out west here it was like you know the 60s into the 70s you know out in in quebec for example it was like the 40s and the 50s it's crazy to me just the this progression it seems like the further west you go the further along the timelines and decades you get yeah, in Toronto, I mean, there was a lot of ups and downs here. So, you know, it, it started in 1929. So if, if you go back through the history, you know, there was a lot of peaks and valleys. Uh, the 50s is where it hit its boom, mostly because of the, the TV coverage. So the, the stars, you know, the, the, the stars of Toronto ended up becoming the stars of Canada. And that's what really pushed it. And, and along with Toronto, I mean, Montreal, if you go, like, just take a year in 1952, say, and look at Montreal, Toronto, Ottawa, Hamilton, even just in a, in a six-hour corridor here, it was just huge. You know, you, you had Taz, Rogers, Kaninsky, O'Connor, Hutton, Fritz von Erich. Those names were, were every night uh, along the circuit. So it was a really exciting time for, for the Toronto fans, you know. So I guess... Just speaking about Kaniski himself, and we're, we'll get into the way he got into Toronto and then into Montreal after the fact, but what were you able to 
figure or what were you able to glean, I guess, from, like you said, you had gone on the message boards and a lot of the older fans were, were kind of, that was their outlet to, to connect with everybody else. Was he one of the guys that everybody was talking about? Like, oh, you should have seen him in this year or you should have seen him, you know, during this run or what was kind of the, the general consensus on the message boards about Gene Kaniski in the time in Toronto? Well, it's a good question. But part of the problem is a lot of these guys were around before we were, you know. I'm talking about fans that, you know, born in the late 60s, say, so there were fans in the 70s and 80s. So, I mean, Kaninsky, even though, like, we knew Kaninsky, he was here in, up until 1982. So yes. He was still still around and, and still stomping all over Maple Leaf Gardens at the time. <laughs> so uh, he had a lot of longevity, but... As far as his older stuff, I think most people just didn't, you know, you're only reading and looking at pictures. In the last 10, 15 years, we've seen, you know, more video come out. Uh, you've seen, you know, more people coming out and being online talking about uh, Kaninsky or Buddy Rogers. You know, you got books. Uh, Tim Hornbaker just wrote that great book on Rogers. Yes. You got a lot, a lot more information coming down the line. Uh, for me, it's mostly looking back through the papers, uh, talking to fans that were there, you know, like my friend Roger Baker, for example, and uh, you really get the excitement of, of what these guys were like in their prime, you know, back in the, in the 50s and the 60s. So in regards to the Maple Leaf Wrestling Organization, tell me a little bit about the backstory of, of, uh, of what their kind of territory was and, and what was... What was the thought of bringing Kaniski in there, if you know? I'm not sure if you do, even. Well, at that time, like, he came in in 1956. So yes. He started out west. Uh, he was only maybe a few years into his career when he arrived here. And, and he was like a star right from the start. At that time, Toronto had a really busy circuit. You know, there was Oshawa, Hamilton, Toronto, Niagara Falls. Uh, Brantford, and they did all the smaller towns too. So there was wrestling every night of the week, pretty much. And uh, the sports, you know, in Toronto, even now it's the same, but back then the sports pages were just crammed with wrestling. It was it was right up with hockey or, or baseball, and there was a lot of media coverage and spotlight on the city. So I'm sure that had a, a lot of hand in kind of creating that Kaninsky legend. Because when he was here, like it only took about a year, not even, before those guys were, were basically taking their, their feud across the country. From everything that I can read, is it correct that he had his first main event in 57? Uh, in Toronto? Yes, in oh. Toronto, I should specify. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. As soon as... He arrived in 56, he basically ran roughshod over everybody, and he was, like, unbeatable until they matched him up with Whipper, you know, and then that's how that started. Uh, he hit, I'll tell you in one second, but he, he did hit the main events in 1957, and, that, and that's where it took off. And a lot of those those main event those were all held at the Maple Leaf Gardens, if I'm, if I'm correct, right? Yeah, mostly. Most of it is Maple Leaf. They also used East York Arena and Maple Leaf Stadium at times later. 
uh, but most of the action was at, at Maple Leaf Gardens. And that's crazy to think in itself, just the history of that building, right, with all, everything that the, the, that the Leafs did, and then, you, like you're saying, wrestling was, like, it was like a one-two punch, right, in that Toronto area, in Maple Leaf Gardens, right, you're getting just incredible entertainment between the two, you know, obviously they're in opposite sides of the sports spectrum, but... Man, what a time to be there. That's crazy. Oh, yeah, and it was packed. And the fans were crazy. I mean, they were, they were a minute away from a riot every part. <laughs> and Kaninsky was, was right in there. The fans, like, when they, he first showed up, they, they basically hated him right away. And uh, it just got better, so it took off. And even in, in the first two years or so, you know, some people's whole career could have been in those two years here. So. so I guess in, I'm not sure if it was in 57 or 58, is that when he started teaming with Buddy Rogers? Uh, around that time, yeah. He started teaming, like, him and Fritz hooked up. Yeah. Him and Dick Button, and then him and Rogers. The Rogers was just for a short series. Basically, what they did here, you know, revolved around Whipper. So Whipper would feud with them, and then someone would interfere. Like uh, Hutton would accompany Kaninsky to the ring. He would attack Whipper. So on the next card, they'd bring in Pat O'Connor to team with Whipper. You know, so you had all these great matchups and feuds, and they would just keep revolving them, moving them around, you know, different combinations. It just keep it exciting, you know. Like, I guess it was the Kaniski and the Whipper-Watson feud that that was the one that was on CBC, and that's the one that everybody was tuning into. Right. That's right. They, the feud was so big here that they, when the TV hit, you know, they're watching it all across the country on CBC. So they would take it on the road. You know, they, they'd be here on Thursday nights. They'd go into Winnipeg. They'd go into Calgary, Edmonton, Saskatoon, and then they'd be back here next Thursday for the Toronto card. That's crazy. Yeah, and, and include Ottawa, Montreal in there as well. So, you know, Mon I think Montreal was uh, Wednesday night, if I'm not mistaken. Ottawa was the same night as Toronto. So sometimes Gene would be there, and they'd have a different program here. Oh, so they would run dual dual cards on on the same night. Yeah, yeah, that's Eddie Quinn in Ottawa, and Tunney here. So they would have most of the most of the stars were interchangeable. You would see the same guys on on the Ottawa cards as the Toronto. So almost like a split thing, except those were were Eddie Quinn shows. But they had you know him and Tunney had had a bit of a relationship, right? So I guess also in in that era we're we're talking like that 57 to 60 range that's where he was feuding with uh obviously we just talked about uh whipper billy watson but there was a feud with yukon eric as well correct yeah well yukon eric was he was basically the number two guy here okay so if it wasn't if it wasn't whipper it was yukon eric you know against uh kaninsky or fritz or uh, Hans schmidt and hard-boiled haggerty those types so they would just bring them in. You know, we had Whipper and Yukon with kind of the top good guys. And then they would just have a revolving door of, of the heels, although Kaninsky stayed. You know, he was, he was kind of a regular for a few years. That's right. Yeah. 
So when, when and I know that he had wrestled Edward Carpanche as well. Was that in Toronto or was that strictly in Montreal? Or do, would you know that part of it? Um, he may have met he may have met Carpanche here. I have my results list up, but it's you know sixty years. Ago. Oh, for sure, yeah. Yeah, well, basically they all they all fought each other. You know, when when Kaninsky came back later with the NWA title, he faced Carpanche a few times, and but that's a little later in the like in '66 yes. through '60 '68 '69 when he held the title. But uh, in the '50s, yeah, they all they all faced each other, and even if not at Maple Leaf Gardens on the circuit, you know, they'd go into Hamilton and Niagara Falls, so you'd see those matchups in those little towns as well, you know, can you imagine seeing Kaninsky versus Carpanche, you know, at your local arena? No kidding. That's great. So I, I have in my notes as well that uh, he had won the British Empire title from Pat O'Connor, that would have been in 57, like early 57, and then he also won the Montreal version of that same title from Carpanche in, in June of that same year. So you're you're talking about a guy who comes in and runs roughshod over everybody and now now you got some straps on him and now he's got a lot of a lot of steam behind him. It's just it's crazy to think that he's, you know, three years essentially into his career and he's he's the guy and on the biggest stage in the world between Toronto and Montreal. Uh, yeah, pretty much. I mean a lot of it was was his his self promotion, and you know he was really good at it. If you talk to anybody that was around, you know, in the late fifties, early sixties, he was he was just uh, you know over the top in his in his own self promotion. So that really helped him, especially here because the you know the journalists uh, were a big part of the office, and the, the media, the print media. I mean, so they would they would really cover Kaninsky a lot and they loved dealing with him because he was just such a you know a, a great guy and a, he was a famous athlete like as far as his, he had a football career and now he's a big wrestler so he was a pretty popular guy and, and that really helped him you know probably pushed him over and, and as far as being successful across the country could you imagine a guy like that in today's social media world He'd be a he'd be a media darling. It'd be incredible. Yeah, yeah. You see some you see some that are similar. You know, like Chris Jericho and these types. It's not much different. Uh, the difference, I think, is though, like from there, you know, these these guys, especially the ones that came out of football or boxing, they were looked at as legit athletes. You know, not that not that Jericho or these type like the newer guys aren't. I'm just saying that back then there was. You know, they were they were legit already, so it helped them as a wrestler, obviously, especially with the media. You know, and there was a big not I don't know what the term or phrase you would use, but there was a big portion of the sports media that would that would point out like this guy's a legitimate athlete because he came from blank uh, football or basketball or whatever, and there was a lot of promotions throughout not just Canada, but you look at somewhere like Mid-South, for example, um, with with Bill Watts, right? He would really push the guys that had that athletic background. Like, this, these guys are the legitimate stars, and, and this is why, right? They have the background, they have the pedigree, they have all, all these attributes and whatever, and they would really get pushed in the media. Yeah, it's, Gene was the same thing, as far as I can tell. 
Well, sure. I mean, part, part of that is because, you know, in those days, there were a lot of doubters. You know, uh, wrestling isn't real. It's predetermined. Those guys aren't really fighting. So when you had a, a real athlete, you know, not a, not a real athlete, like wrestlers are real athletes, no doubt, but, but a mainstream athlete like Kaninsky. You know, here in Toronto, like Tony, Eddie Quinn did it too. They, they had a constant parade of CFL players, the Canadian Football League players, football. They had a constant stream in that era of trying them to turn them into wrestlers. And here in Toronto, we had a few uh, Argo guys, Gil Maines, uh, Dick Huffman, who's in the Canadian Football Hall of Fame, yeah. who wrestled for a bit. You know, Eddie Quinn had a ton of them too. He had uh, uh, Emperor Jones. We had, you know, so those the, the promoters loved bringing the football guys in because it, it kind of legitimized it. Well, Angelo Mosco too, right? Because he came into the wrestling after, like in yeah, between seasons. Yeah, yeah here, that's right. Here he came in a little later, but yeah, that that's a, a perfect example. And he was a Hall of Fame legend, you know, so that was even better. Wow. Also, in uh, I know I know we're we're keeping in '57, but it just seems like there's there's so much that happened that year. Um, I'm I was reading some notes that he he headlined a wrestling card in in uh, Montreal at Delorean. Del- I'm going to say this wrong because I'm very not French forward, but Delormier Stadium, and he dropped the Montreal world title to uh, Killer Kowalski. Again, another Canadian wrestling legend. And, like, everybody... I have to put it in context because a lot of fans today don't understand what it was back then, right? You look at wrestling cards today, and, and a big crowd is, you know, 5,000 fans. Maybe that's a big house in, in today's day and age but he drops the title to killer kowalski in july of 57 there's 21,000 plus fans at that stadium like this is not the the and i I don't mean to come down on on modern wrestling and all that kind of stuff but people talk about people watching today and, and ratings today and all that kind of stuff there was way way more people going to the shows going to the big events back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, then people probably have any idea in regards to. Oh, yeah. I mean, here they were doing 10,000 a week at the gardens. And that's alone. insane. Yeah, 10,000 a week. And then, they, you know, every other night was booked, too. Even in, like, smaller, you know, the, the hockey arena you take your kids to, they were putting 1,500, 2,000 people into those. And that's a that, that's that yeah I was just gonna say that's weekly because they ran that was their circuit right, right, right. It, it, it is if you look at the attendance back then it was crazy, but I mean they, they had lean times too. But uh, fifty seven in particular is probably one of the best years here, and maybe across the country at least Montreal Toronto this corridor. Yeah, it's just. You, you try and contextualize it, but sometimes you can't, right? And this is like, this is way before, you know, mainstream media coverage. Although the local papers would cover it, I'm talking like national coverage. Although they did have the feuds on CBC that everybody could see, like with, you know, with Kaniski and, and Whipper Watson. But still, 
not everybody had a, t- a television set either in those days, and and the ones who did, it was it's the rabbit ears classic, right? Right, and, and wrestling was huge on TV at the beginning. I mean, you had nothing to watch. So That's right. Wrestling, wrestling was a big part of it. Like I was, I was speaking earlier with um, with Steve Verrier on the program, and we were talking about like here in Winnipeg, for example. I remember going to my nana and papa's house, and this was you know, in the 80s, like, late 80s, and they had, like, four channels, I think, on the Rabbit Ears, and it was, CBC had the clearest, clearest uh, reception, and then we had CTV and, and, uh, CKND and, and something else, but, like, that, that was it, you had, it's not like today's day and age where you, goddamn, you can watch whatever on your TV on your phone, for example. Yeah, well, now you have 800 channels. Yeah. Down, right? But, I mean, like, when I was a kid, even, like, in 1980, 1981, we could watch five, six hours of wrestling on a Saturday. Yes. You know, we, we, got every, we got Toronto, we got Vancouver, we got Montreal. You know, at different times here, they had Calgary, Stampede was big. So, you know, the, the fans, it was really national thing. For sure, and even even back then, they had a ton of wrestling, even into the late fifties. Like in Toronto, you could watch Texas wrestling. You know, they had the Chicago, the the Dumont Network stuff, all that stuff. Crazy, yeah. So, in terms of Kaniski, so and I don't know how the proper way to phrase this would be, but when he joined the AWA, that was in nineteen sixty. Was he still coming through Toronto, or was he? out of there by then and then he came back after no he would he would continue to appear here he was pretty regular through those years you know by by the time that the 60s hit it changed a little bit here so you know kaninsky was was traveling but those guys would still appear in toronto quite regularly and i'm reading here that uh and and Everybody has to understand that at the time, like the NWA was the promotion. The AWA had broken off, quote unquote, from the NWA, so it wasn't a monopoly. And that was, that's a whole other episode that maybe we'll cover at some point in time. But essentially, you had the AWA with a solid working relationship with the NWA, so you would have these stars kind of cross promote and cross pollinate, if you will. So you have a guy like Kaniski who's you know, all over the, all over Vern's territory. Then he's in Texas. Then he's up to Vancouver. Then he's over in Japan. Then he's back in Toronto, for example. And I see here, like in the, in the sixties is when he was making appearances for the WWF in Toronto, correct? Well, like we were an NWA town. The thing is, is back then, and even right up till about uh, 1984, probably, that the wrestlers would move around a lot, you know, so they don't get stale. Yes. So even in Toronto, like when I was a kid, we knew we were an NWA town, but there was nothing unusual about Backlund coming in with the WWF title. There was nothing unusual about Bachwinkle because it, it, that's just the way everyone moved around, you know. Like all our favorites, one day they're in the AWA, next day they show up in NWA. But it didn't really have much of a, a bearing back then. It, like nowadays, if they switch companies like that, it, it would seem unusual. But back then, it was just the way it was. So Kaninsky, you know, he would just come in on a Thursday, 
he would fly back out, go do his thing, and then come back in a few weeks. So how many years, and if, if you if you would know, how many years was it that Maple Leaf Wrestling ran th- the Thursday Big Show? Was, was that, like, I'm trying to read in my notes here, and it looks like about 15 years or so. Maybe I'm wrong. A um, little bit more than that. It's the, the weekly cards here started in 1929. So that was Mikhailov. When Maple Leaf Gardens opened in 1931, Jack Corcoran got the rights. And he's the one that started the, the, the office that Frank Tunney took over. Yes. So all through that time, they were doing weekly shows. The weekly shows on Thursdays went up into the mid-60s. And then they switched it to Sundays. And then it, it started being a little less frequent. You know, the, in the 40s and 50s, they were running 40 to 50 shows a year. At Gardens. Yes. And, and uh, you know, towards the end of the 60s, the business was, was waning. Uh, so they, they didn't, they were still doing weekly or, or bi-weekly. Uh, the chic era is when they kind of changed it and went to twice a month, basically. And partly because they were making, you know, those those shows were huge. It was selling out the gardens for years there. And, like, you're talking about the Sheik out of Detroit, correct? Yeah, once, once the Sheik came in after 69, that, that's the, that's like the second boom or the third boom maybe even by that time. So, you know, they, they, were, they were doing 11,000, 12,000, 15,000. When you get into 1970, 71, 72, they were doing huge numbers, 17,000s, 18,000s, which is huge, you know, selling out the gardens. So they were only doing, they, were, they went a little less frequent. But the, the weekly shows went on for close to 40 years. So when when um, Kaniski had the title and he was the quote-unquote heel champion, did he make many stops in Toronto? Oh, yeah, he was here quite a bit. Uh, maybe about 18 defenses, 17. Wow. Defenses. Yeah, he, he was in quite a bit. You know, he was a big draw here, so, you know, obviously he's going to come in quite a bit. But at that time, the, you know, the NWA champion was a, was a regular occurrence in Toronto. Uh, from, from the, you know, from between 50 and 84, there was over 130 title defenses Jeez. in Toronto. Like, think about that for a second. How many how many cities now get a title? And I'm not talking about your local mom and pop promotion, but how many cities now get a title defense? It's to get a to get that many. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. It's, uh, it, it was a it was a big thing there. You know, it, it's the world title back then, so it was always a big draw. So, uh, you know, they're getting 10, 15, 20 appearances a year in some years. Obviously, early in his career, he was the he was the Canadian champion. Period. Like everybody loved him in Canada. When he came back as a heel champion, how was he received by the fans? He was a heel right up until I think Sheik era. Probably is the first time he came back not as a heel. So he was a heel right through, and then through his his championship run as well. Uh, later, he took on the Sheik. I think that's about when he switched. So it was, it was, that was late in the, in the game, in the early 70s. Yeah, that would have been, yeah, early, 69 to 70, 71 maybe or so. Yeah, a little later is when he switched, but it didn't last long. Like he, When he came back later, he, 
was a heel again. In terms of of how he ran after the title defense, because obviously he he didn't do a whole lot in the seventies. He was he was not wrapping up his career, but he didn't have as many events. Right, he kind of after he dropped the title, he was taking time off. He wasn't as involved as he was. What can you speak to about his his involvement in the Toronto scene in the seventies and into the eighties? Yeah, well, as far as I know, he went back to Vancouver, like, and stayed closer to home. He had, to, you know, he had his two sons. And That's he, right. So he kind of dropped out a bit. But here, he did have a run with the Sheik uh, that did really well in the, in the early '70s, and then he came back. He'd come back occasionally later, '76, '77, and then he did a final run through uh, in 1982 where he feuded with Angelo Mosca over the Canadian title. And it was actually pretty good. Like, at the time, I had no sense of the history, so I didn't really know who Kaninsky was or, or what he had done. But even in 1982, he was still pretty good at, and aggressive and stomping all over the ring. And there was quite a bit of blood in the in the bout with Mosca. So, you know, even even 25 years later, he was still still going pretty good. Was that when Moscow ran that super show? Uh, it's a few years before that. Okay. That, you're thinking of Moscow Mania. That's what I'm thinking about, yes. Yeah, which is 86, I think. So, yeah, I'm talking about 82. Just about the last few years, you know, of the Toronto NWA days before the WWF came in. So, as, as the... NWA association with Toronto kind of phased out and the WWF came in. Was there much of, I don't know how to say this properly, but was there, was there a pushback from the fans? Like, because they, they had seen the NWA. Now they're getting this other product, if you will. Was there a big pushback from the fans or, or how did, how did that situation kind of un, unfold? Yeah, it was an interesting time. You know, at, at the time, uh, I wasn't happy. Like, you know, the WWF, we loved WWF, but at that time in 84, after Hulkamania kind of hit, it, you know, for, for me, I was kind of growing out of it anyways, getting a little bit older, so I wasn't going as much. But for, for the NWA fans, it was, a, it, was, it was like the Black Friday, you know, from, from the, for the Georgia fans. So it was a, a huge, huge hit. Saying that, though, it really revitalized Toronto, you know, with the, with the Hulk era. So it, it basically revitalized it again, you know, because it, it hit a hard shot there at the very end. Uh, the Crockett's weren't sending up the stars, and it was just kind of fizzling out. So I know we're kind of backtracking a little bit, but from, and correct me if I'm wrong, please, but so Tunney ran... Toronto essentially from like about 1940 to like the late 70s, 78 or so. And then that's when they aligned with Jim Crockett for a bit, correct? Yeah. Well, well, it's Tunney's office. He took over in 1939, him and his brother, his brother, John, they took it over from Jack Corcoran in 1939, but John died unexpectedly in January, 1940. So Frank was left to take over. 
John had been the matchmaker and was probably in line to become the promoter when Jack passed it off. But after he died, Frank took over, and he ran it till 1983 when he died. Uh, but in 78, they went into a partnership with Crockett and George Scott, mostly to supply the wrestlers. But the office was still Frank's. You know, him, him and Jack, Jack his nephew, who eventually took it over. So Jack was mostly running it through the 70s, doing a lot of the, you know, he was at the TV tapings and handling a lot of that stuff. But Frank was getting a bit older. But Frank, for all, you know, for time span, he, he was there from 19, the early 1930s, and he took it over in 39, and then he passed on in 1983. So when when they switched from working with Jim Crockett to the WWF, was that, like, whose call was that, or how did that come to be? Well, that, the, like the genesis of that, the genesis of that started a, a few years before. In 1982, you know, Frank had been close with Vince, Vince the Elder, they don't call him Vince yeah, Senior. Yes. But Vince Junior's father, Vince, he was close with Frank. So they always had a, a good relationship, and Bruno was in here all the time in the 60s, etc. So around 1982, they had started to look at a, a prospect of teaming with the WWF more full-time than, than the NWA. So they, they ran a few cards. They had a couple with Backlund on top. They weren't much different than the cards that had been before, but they didn't do great. Backlund wasn't a great draw up here. You know, he was a great wrestler. I loved him, but he wasn't a great draw. So I think it started around 82. And then after Frank died, uh, it, it changed the landscape a little up here. So, you know, when when Vince Sr. passed on, uh, Jack and, and I think Eddie went to the funeral. And they, they cut a deal around that time. And that's how it started, because here, here it had, had gone down to the cards. I think the, the last couple of NWA cards here, they did like a couple thousand people. Jeez. It. So it was really on its last legs. When they brought the WWF in, it didn't jump right away, but as soon as you know they brought Hulk in a, a few months later or whatever, it just boomed again. So after the after they had aligned with the WWF, did Kaniski come in for any any one offs or anything like that? No, he was. I think he was done by that time. That's that's in '84. So yes, and I think that, I'm not sure because I would have to look at his record. But I think he was down to you know special refereeing at the at the events. So that was around his last last run around, but not as a wrestler. And he didn't. I don't think he came back here again uh, after that. He didn't wrestle here at all. That's for sure. I, I think his last appearance here was in '82. He came back for uh, Frank's funeral in '83, and that's it. Yeah, in terms of a run. Well, and mind you, like he was semi-retired. If, um, I I understand that nobody ever really retires from wrestling unless they're forced yeah. to. But uh, yeah, definitely semi-retired by that point in time. Um, obviously, he had the the massive feud with Whipper Billy Watson, but what other kind of feuds did he have in the for Toronto for the Toronto scene? Listen to me talk. 
and for Maple Leaf Wrestling. What what were the other notable feuds that he had? And kind of kind of walk us through a little bit of that. Uh, well, he, I mean, he feuded with everybody, right? It's you know, Pat O'Connor. You know, he challenged Thez. Uh, That's one. Cool. Sorry, go ahead. But I want to come back to the Thez thing after. So I don't mean to interrupt, but please go ahead. I mean, he, he fought with most of the regulars. Most, most of the people at the top there were the same. You know, it was Whipper and Yukon. Uh, you know, he teamed with Fritz. A lot of tag team in that era. Uh, but, yeah, the, uh, Whipper was the most notable. Because he, uh, he was the baby face in, uh, in, uh, in Toronto, correct? Yeah, he was just the, the top guy for sure, you know. So... Everybody had to take on Watson. Usually what they would do, they would have the guy come in and he would flatten everybody in his path until he, you know, I'm looking for Whipper and Whipper would be, I'm waiting for him and they would build it up that way. Yeah. Until finally they met Whipper and usually got beat. But Whipper, I mean, Whipper lost a lot too and, and took a lot of tumbles over the ropes. And so, there, you know, it, it was always a, a, a pump the other guy up too and, and that's what really made it because Whipper, he didn't have to win every, every bout, you know, like, like some of the other, other top guys. The other thing I, I didn't mean to cut you off about, but when he was feuding with Fez in Toronto, we'll speak a little bit about that. Uh, well, those are just title defenses. You know, they would, they would put them up. So Fez would come through and they would, he would face all the, the top local guys, even, even the, the heels sometimes. Yes. So, you know, it, Tez would come in, he'd face, you know, guys like Hans Herman, that Gorgeous George. And then, you know, we had our local guys like Leighton, Lord Leighton, uh, Hans Schmidt, Yukon uh, Eric, you know, guys like that. Uh, Tez and Kaninsky, I think they only had one meeting here in the first run. I know he's faced Tez again on the second run. Yes. Yeah, so... You know, those those are huge bouts, of course, and, and you're going to fill up the garden. So they they would run those. Um, in terms of kind of his the Kaniski legacy on Toronto and Maple Leaf wrestling. Um, first off, and this is kind of a two part question, so I'll ask in two parts. What do you think is the legacy that Maple Leaf wrestling left on the Toronto wrestling scene? Well, it's huge. I mean. You know, it was it was just such a big part of the city. Uh, you know, in that era, I can't I can't say it was the same later. You know, when I was a kid, mostly you you didn't you didn't admit you were a wrestling fan. Yeah. So it was kind of <laughs> it was kind of hushed, and and there wasn't a lot of media coverage. You know, in 1980, you're lucky to just see the ad. You sometimes had a little results box, tiny little box buried in the in the back of the sports. But in the 50s, 60s, even going right back to the 30s, there was a lot of coverage here. It was a big part of the, the city, you know, as big as, not as big as the Leafs, but, but up there with them. And then what would you say is Kaniski's legacy in Toronto? Well, definitely the, the feud with Whipper, no, no doubt. Yeah. You know, that they took it national. It just kind of epitomized the scene up here at the time. And it, not only with those two, but, I mean, they took along a lot of people with them. 
So a lot of these guys, you know, they traveled together and, and, and appeared in those towns too. So it created quite a few stars. Uh, and a lot of them out of Toronto, uh, Montreal as well, you'd have to put in there, you know, great, great wrestling city. So between Montreal and Toronto, uh, you know, Kaninsky, for sure, you got you to gotta say Whipper is the, the legacy, the, the feud between those two. And I guess for yourself, just I understand that you're you missed that era of wrestling. But what was kind of what's the most interesting thing that you not just Kaniski in general, but throughout your research and and what you've learned over the years about the Toronto wrestling scene? What was kind of the most interesting thing that you you found out about the scene that you may have never known before? So much, there's so much, really. Uh, you know. Probably the most interesting facet of, of the Toronto scene is the office. Uh, I find the office fascinating because they had a lot of journalists, uh, other sporting guys. It, it was like a like a hotbed of activity, and the the off as well as it's kind of mysterious because there's you know we don't know a lot about the the inner workings of the office here uh, compared to other cities. You know, like Stu Hart is a good example you know pretty much you know how their office ran and there's been books Bret Hart wrote one there's been a couple good ones on Stu yeah you know uh, uh, Heath wrote that great uh, the pain yes you know so there's all that information but in Toronto we don't really have that luxury you know Jack's gone Frank's gone uh, Eddie Tunney's still still here Frank's son who was part of the office in the later days but, you know, other than, uh, like, there's just not any inside information. So it's still very mysterious, even all these years later. And we may never know, really, how, how it all worked or, or some of those inside working. I find that fascinating as well. And, and you know, you bring up Heath, and I was t- talking with him on the Stu Hart episode. And he was saying, like, you know, you, you're trying to find out information and... and some guys still, you know, kayfabe is king, and they just won't, yeah. they won't give you anything. And if you don't know, you don't know, and you'll never find out. And a lot of the, a lot of people will just, whatever information they had, it they take it to the grave, and that's it. It's, it's, it's. That's very true, and you know, I've tried, and I have. Oh I have yeah. Talked to a, I have talked to a few people, uh, and I have been declined by a few, and so I don't, I don't really pursue it, you know. Uh, Greg Oliver uh, is the guy because it's, you know they all trust him, so he usually gets all those types of, of contacts. So it, it is really tough for for anyone else to, to kind of get in there. In Toronto, though, we we just don't have. There's nobody around that's that's got that information, and so it, it probably will just die off with it. But that's. And it's, yeah, it's it's such a horrible thing to think about, right? Like, if people aren't talking about this history, and if people aren't going back and, and at least attempting to do the research or finding these hit, tidbits or whatever, like, like yourself and others are doing, then it just, once it's lost to the sense of time, man, it's gone. And it's it's such a sad state of affairs. Yeah, the, well, it's the feeling of, of how it was. You're, you're not, you can't really relive that. But, I mean... You know that you can't you can't relive it, so you got to go back and, and and research it. You know nowadays because 
newspapers are all digitized. I find a lot of the young fans are really into the history. They're really looking back and, and trying to see where it all came from. So that, that, that's positive. You know, so I think it'll live on, especially now the kids are crazy about the wrestling again. So, you know, I, I guess a, a lot of them will go back and they'll, they'll try to learn about it, which is good. I hope so because, and I mean, we're only uncovering portions of it throughout this program, but there is so much history, not just in Canada. Obviously, I'm partial to that one, but there's just so much about the history of wrestling that that needs to be reexamined or needs to be dug into, and and that's the whole premise of this program is is you know we if we don't talk about it, who's going to right, and 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 who's going to have that touchstone? if it's not available to kind of dig their, you know, dig into it and kind of get their feet wet in the history of wrestling. Sure. And, you know, there's a lot of great resources, so you just have to kind of seek them out. So in terms of yourself, AC, as we kind of start to wind this thing up, what do you have coming out the uh, pipeline in the near future? Uh, well, we just we just put out a book, our second, uh, just late last year. It's called From Manjo to the Sheik, Tales from Toronto Wrestling. And it covers the boom. It's uh, it's basically a narrative from the early days. It mostly focuses on the 50s and 60s, the office, the advent of TV, that kind of thing. Uh, so it's the exciting kind of era. And, and we did a, our first book we did with Dick Bourne of the Gateway, as you know. Uh, that one was on the Canadian heavyweight title. So both of those books are available on uh, Amazon Worldwide. Uh, we got the site. And we're probably going to do another book in a year or so, thinking. So in terms of, uh, and the site and all that, where can everybody go to find you and find the books as well? So we're at MapleLeafWrestling.com uh, since 2003. You can find the site there, and you can purchase the books on Amazon Worldwide, or you can contact me through the site uh, if you're in Canada, and I can set you up. And as well, we're going to be posting the links for the book on tinyurl.com slash grapplingwithcanada, and that will be a direct uh, link to uh, the books from AC as well. Um, AC, before I let you go, what do you think, and I, this is a hard one to phrase too as well, but in terms of, of where Canada's place is in the history of wrestling, where would you put the history of Canada and the and the history of Canadian wrestling up with the with the quote unquote big boys that you know the UK is in the Japan's and the Americas of the world. Oh, we're we're way up there. <laughs> if, if you look at the, you know think about the population of Canada back in 1960, and look at how many wrestlers came out of here. Yes, not, not only just across the country, but just from Hamilton alone, the the, the factory in Hamilton. You could name 30, 40 main eventers that came out of just our area. Uh, never mind, you know, Stu's, Stu's grounds, his kids, the Maritimes, you know, Vancouver, Boomin, you know, just uh, Winnipeg. Winnipeg, too, will go way back. Yes. I, I think Canada is very underrated. If you look at message boards, uh, you know, they're very southern-centric. So, you know, Florida wrestling, Texas wrestling, Mid-Atlantic, they get, they get most of the coverage. 
but Canada definitely uh, it deserves its spot with any of those areas anytime through any of the history. Couldn't say it better myself, and in fact, I couldn't. That's why I had such a hard time getting that one out. But AC, once again, thank you, man, for joining the program. Uh, it was a real treat for me, and I'm looking forward to your future projects. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. As we head to the finish of tonight's program, I'm going to play one more classic Gene Kaniski audio clip. Now, this one comes from February in 1992. Now, that date is going to sound familiar from the conversation that I had with Steve. But this was the final appearance that Gene Kaniski made in a wrestling ring. Although, in the promo that you're going to hear afterwards, hosted by Winnipeg Rock Wrestling's legend, Joe Aiello, he sure doesn't sound like he's ready to hang him up, and he's uh, still looking to take on all comers, but this is the promo from his final set of tapings and final set of matches in his wrestling career. Like we said earlier in the program, these happened in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, where I just happen to be from. So please enjoy this clip of Gene Kaniski audio being interviewed again by Joe Aiello. And on the other side, stay tuned because, like I said, we're going to talk a little bit of uh, things that we have going on in the upcoming future for the program, as well as uh, some ways to support the show. So here's some classic audio. And then on the flip side, I'll catch you all for the end of the show. Please enjoy. Is this the end for you? History could have been made tonight. Are you coming back? Are you going to take on Brown? Are you going to take on Morrow? What's on your agenda? First of all, I'd like to say this. It is not the end. It is the beginning. I have started a job, and I am going to finish it. I have an obligation to yours truly, Gene Kaniski. But I have had such a great, great uh, profession. And I want to thank all you fans for making life so beautiful. I will not let you fans down. By the response we've got in postcards and letters, if you want me back, I will be back. And like I've said on numerous occasions, when you spend a dollar to see Canada's greatest athlete, you're going to get a $10 value. I have the score to settle with the tenacious Bulldog Brown and Eddie Morrow. As I said before, I feel a great injustice was done. The fans were very, very disappointed. But I know deep in my heart we will not have a repetition of what transpired here. And I am going to balance the ledger once and for all. And uh, the name Kaniski will be on the credit side, and Brown and Morrill will be in the debit end. All right, Canada's greatest athlete, Gene Kaniski. Not the end, but the beginning. Make sure... Go so ahead. I'd like to say this. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank my fellow Canadians and the American viewing audience for allowing me in the homes for, uh, to, for television. And Joe, as usual, you did a tremendous job. I enjoy wrestling. All right, and we enjoyed having you here, Gene. Always a pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, when this man's on the marquee, make sure you get your tickets early. As we look to wrap up tonight's show, I just want to say a special thank you to the two guests that joined me on the program tonight, Steve Verrier and AC from MapleLeafWrestling.com. I hope that all of you enjoyed the interviews that I had with them as much as I enjoyed hosting them. Like I said, when you can get absolutely schooled on your own program and have a blast doing it, that really is truly the mark of of a great program in my opinion. And uh, I was really, really fortunate to have them on and I plan on having them on in the future. So uh, AC and Steve, if you're listening, I'm going to be reaching out to you guys on some uh, some future topics, if you will. 
Once again, I want to mention tinyurl.com slash grapplingwithcanada. On there, you can find the links to the books written by Steve and AC, as well as the other authors that we've had in the program. Uh, use those Amazon links to purchase those books, as many of you have done with the uh, Heath McCoy books and the other ones listed on the website. Uh, once again, this doesn't add anything to your purchasing price, but it does provide a small kickback to the show, which I greatly appreciate. Also, on tinyurl.com slash grapplingwithcanada, you'll see a link to the 30-day free Amazon Prime subscription. Uh, This is for your free Amazon Prime uh, shipping, listen to me talk, as well as access to the Amazon Prime video service. Once again, this is a free 30-day trial. Doesn't add anything to your trial cost. But it does provide a small kickback to the show. So once again, tinyurl.com slash grapplingwithcanada for all those uh, wonderful bennies, if you will. Go ahead, check it out, click those links, and uh, support the show. It would be greatly appreciated. The other thing that I teased earlier on in this show, and I kind of had the jump start on it last month, is merchandise. Although it's not going to be exactly what you guys think. I will be running a very limited run of t-shirts for the program. I'm going to do a very small run of 50 shirts, 5-0. Once they're gone, they will never be reprinted again. And it's going to be of the classic Grappling With Canada logo with the Maple Leaf flag. Now, of note, a portion of these t-shirt sales will be going to the Children's Hospital here in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. Now, many of you, if you've heard the Six-Sided Podcast program that I used to run, are familiar with this story. This will be a refresher to you. If you've never heard it, then it's new to you. But when my youngest daughter was born, she had some complications, we'll say, and she ended up spending essentially the first almost two months of her life in the NICU at the uh, Children's Hospital wing of, of the Health Sciences Center in Winnipeg. And um, the staff there were incredible. The nurses, the doctors, everybody was just was top notch. And uh, I've I've made it a point to uh, to kind of do some philanthropy for them uh, in the years past. So I couldn't find a better way to do it this time than with the shirts. So once again, this is going to be a very limited run. Like I said, 50 shirts. Once they're gone, they're gone. They will never be reprinted again. So if you are interested in securing your spot as one of the 50, sixsidepod at gmail.com. Email me if you're looking for a specific size. I will be. I will make sure, for sure, to get that on the list. And uh, and we're going to get these up in probably the next month or so. I will keep you guys all appraised of that on the website and as well on Twitter at 6 underscore podcast. Once again, I want to reiterate, 50 shirts, that's it. Once they're gone, they're gone. And a portion of the proceeds will be being donated to the Children's Hospital here in Winnipeg, Manitoba. And I can't really think of a more worthy cause than that. So... Looking forward to that. I'm going to get all that information to you guys as it becomes available to me. But once again, contact me, sixsidepod at gmail.com if you want to get on the ground floor and secure your t-shirt size specifically. Now that we've gotten through all of that, 
Once again, I want to thank the two guests I had in the program. I want to thank you, the listener. Uh, like I said, we've been tra- uh, charting. Again, listen to me talk. You can tell it's the end of the program, but here we go anyways. Like I said, we've been charting on iTunes. It really means a lot to me, so make sure if you're listening to this, hit that subscribe button. Uh, please leave a five-star review, if you please, on iTunes. And uh, once again, you know, text a friend. Tell someone you'll listen to the program. Kind of pass the information on and... Uh, just spread the word. It, it helps me, but more importantly, like I said earlier in the program, it helps keep the memory of Canadian wrestling legends alive. And uh, that's really the most important thing that I think I can do. And uh, it's it just it seems really important to me, and I, I really I just can't put it into words. Anyways, I'm just gonna leave it. I'm obviously I'm a little bit um, bum fuzzled and verklempt, if you will, <laughs> talking about. Uh, talking about the heavy subject matter that we had talked about earlier in the program but suffice it to say i had a blast tonight i hope you guys all enjoyed the program and i hope you'll be back next month for grappling with canada but until then take care of yourselves and each other good night everyone